you can go ahead and go. Try to make sure we're in there. Actually, yeah. You can go to page three. We will get in there in just a moment. Uh, by way, more of the stuff. The name is John G. Lake, John G. Lake, or John G. Lake Ministries, Divine Healing Technicians, John G. Lake Healing Rooms, John G. Lake's Divine Healing Institute. All of those are copyrighted. If you hear anybody using them, please let us know. All right? Because, I mean, if you go to a John G. Lake Healing Room, we want to make sure that you're getting ministered to according to John G. Lake teaching. Right? And that you're not getting something else that's passed off as that. So, you know, if, whether it's good or bad, just contact us and let us know that you've come across it. And that way we can find out who they are. So... Um, next, yes, I was going to give you uh, several of the situations. I, actually, I don't know if we'll actually get into chapter one like I want to yet. But I was going to give you the kind of the top three, four, five things that you will always encounter in ministering healing. Right? And we're going to answer those now. So first off, uh, actually, if you have your Bible, we can go in the Bible because these are not in your manual. Sorry. <clears throat> By the way, as I said, I'm working on a new manual. That's it so far, okay? So far, it's 186 pages, and it'll be probably closer to 250 by the time we get done. Um, but it's going to be complete, right? And I'm even working... No, title's not on it. I've got a book that I'm working on along the same lines. It'll even be more in detail that um, we're looking at it as being the textbook for everything about healing. It should be your... Hopefully your first, and, and it should be your last book you ever need on healing. should take care of everything, all right? So um, we're trying to put those together. John chapter 5, we'll start there. John 5, starting in verse 1. People will, and a lot of these things kind of weave in and out, so... It's kind of hard to sometimes taking them apart and looking at one thing at a time because they all kind of come together. For instance, if you say, well, God wants to heal everyone, and it's always God's will to heal. Okay, now you just touch two different subjects even though they're both connected, right? So is it always God's will, and does he want to heal everyone? Well, yes, but to prove both, well, now one, you can go in and prove it through healing, generally what's called healing in the atonement. If it's in the atonement, then God, it's for everyone. And if it's in the atonement, it must always be God's will or he couldn't have put it in the atonement. He would have had to make a special dispensation every time somebody needed healing, right? But if you put it in the atonement, the atonement settles it. If it's in the atonement, it's always his will and it's always uh, that he wants everyone healed. Simple as that. So really when you get down to it, every bit of healing teaching, biblical healing teaching, goes back to whether healing is actually in the atonement or not. Physical healing I'm talking about. Now, so we're going to look at some of these things. Another thing that always always come up is that people will say, well, you know, you're just going around praying for people and maybe God doesn't want that person healed. And Oh, well, no, God always wants everyone healed. Well, no, you can't say that because, you know, what about the sovereignty of God? You're taking God's sovereignty away. Okay, that's one thing that usually comes up. And especially right now, there is a an inordinate amount of teaching on the sovereignty of God. And it's even got to the point where it's a hyper-sovereignty of God and it is unfortunately infiltrating the church very much, right? So we're going to be dealing with this more and more as we uh, deal with people on the street and people in church. You know, the funny thing is, people on the street generally don't give you any problems. It's people in church, you know? So 
<clears throat> the people on the street, you know, the sick, they just want to get well. You know, and, and they've already been to the witch doctor. They've been to the pharmacist. Well, that'd be the same thing. But anyway, they just... <laughs> go, go back to the Greek and Hebrew words. It's the same thing. Pharmakia, sorcery, same thing. So anyway, besides that, though, um, they've already been to everybody else. They've been to everything else. They've tried everything. And, you know, they would go to a, you know, psychic and some do, and they don't care how they get healed. They just want to be healed. It's Christians that argue. You know, and you ask, I've only been flat turned down really once to pray when I've asked to pray for somebody. But it's funny because I've been around other people at times they've been turned down when they approach somebody. And you know how they get turned down? Somebody says, well, what church do you go to? And it's the Christian that turns them down because they don't want to be prayed for by a person who goes to a different church. Okay. Now, as Brother Hagin used to say, that's ignorance going to seed. Right. It's already taken root and it has grown full blown. And when ignorance goes to seed, you're ignorant, right? Well, the Bible says, let the ignorant be ignorant still. So we're just going to leave them people alone, and we're going to go on and do what God told us to do. Amen? But I've only been turned down, well, the one person, that was a whole different situation. It's never happened like that again. But um, everybody else has been Christians that have done it. So it's trained people or taught people or mistaught people that will actually give you the problem. Sick people and people with sick children want you to minister to them, Right? Do not believe the lie of the devil that if you're going to approach somebody, they're going to automatically reject you. More often than not, they break down, start crying, and start talking about how they've been praying for God to send somebody to pray for them. That has happened to me way more than any other one response. Right? They're actually praying for God to send someone, and which is great because that also includes faith on their part because then you say, guess what? God sent me. You're going to get healed. And... They're joining their faith with you, and it just works that much better, right? Now, in, um, many times people say, well, God, and I've heard this in testimonies even, they will say, well, God has a time and a place, and God has a way, a specific way to, that he wants to heal me, and God has a time for me, and maybe my time's not yet. So you've got all these things that people will throw at you, know, at you, and in reality, all this goes back to the atonement, because... If God, and usually I try to agree with them, I say, you're exactly right. God did have a time for your healing at the cross. It was at that whipping post. That was God's time. From then on, it was done as far as he's concerned. He's just waiting for you to come pick it up or have it delivered to you, as the case may be. Right? So all those things come back to that. But, so we want to look at this in John <coughs> chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, starting in verse 1. Sorry, sorry. Kind of mistake. <laughs> there we go. It says, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, a blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season. Now you might want to underline certain season. That certain season corresponds with the first verse that says a feast of the Jews. That certain season was during the time of that feast. And if you look at the time, chronological time table here, that was the Passover. Okay? So the time this takes place and the season that the angel came down and troubled the water was always during Passover. So that should connect Passover with healing. Right? We'll see more of those going. For an angel went down a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then, first, underline the word, whosoever, 
Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in, was made whole of whatsoever, underline whatsoever, disease he had. Now, these are two words that most Christians don't believe. Whosoever and whatsoever. They think some and some things. And they, you know, another word is all. They don't believe in all most of the time. They believe the word all means some. But here it says whosoever. That means God doesn't care who. Right? That, when I say God doesn't care who, it doesn't mean he doesn't care about you. What I mean is he's not picking and choosing who. Right? You understand what I mean by whosoever. Okay? And so when it says whosoever, then it says whosoever got in first got healed of whatsoever. So what this tells you is two things. Number one, God is not picking who, and he's not picking of what you get healed. He doesn't care what you have. He can heal it. And, and he wants you healed of it. Right? Now, you'll notice here, based on this one verse, the whoever got in first, whoever got in first, got healed of whatsoever. So basically, 100% of the people that got into this pool got healed. Correct? So we would say all, right? So there's another case of all getting healed. Every person that got in there first after troubling of the water got healed. Now, notice, the, this very verse, people, I've heard people preach this, and they talk about how God, see how God chose this man, right? Because, well, let's read the rest of the story and you'll see what I'm talking about. It says in verse 5, And a certain man was there, which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. When Jesus saw him, you see that? When Jesus saw him. Not five days later. Not when he was led. Not when he heard a voice. Not when an angel visited him. When he saw him. In other words, as soon as Jesus was made aware of the situation. Is that correct? You see that? All right. I want to underline that. When Jesus saw him. And knew that he had been now a long time in that case. He saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? In other words, do you want to be made whole? Now, notice. The impotent man, the person he's talking to, answered him, Sir, I have no man. Now, Jesus' question was not, Do you have a man that will help you in the water? That wasn't his question. His question is, Will you be made whole? The man did not answer his question. Right? He said, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool, but while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Now, notice, again, Jesus. Now, what you can do is you can put parentheses really around verse 7 because the last thing Jesus said was, will you be made whole in verse 6? Then you jump down to verse 8. That's the next thing Jesus said, right? Rise, rise, take up your bed and walk. He totally ignored everything the man said, didn't answer him, didn't engage in a conversation, totally ignored him. First off, said, will you be made whole? The guy didn't answer him. Jesus didn't wait to say, well, wait, you didn't answer me. Let me see where you're at. He didn't say any of that. He just said, listen, rise. take a In other words, I ain't got time for this. Get up. Okay? Amen. I ain't got time to get into all this because I'm telling you, the more conversation you get into, the less praying you will do. You understand what I mean? The less, the less effective you're going to be because they will tie you up in theological discussions or into something else. Or they will tell you their entire medical history and by the time they get done, you have, you're not in compassion, you're in sympathy. And, you have gone so, and they have just sucked all the life and all the faith right out of you because now you're going, well, that's horrible. That's an awful. Wow, I don't know if anybody's been through all you've been. And that is not the basis of faith. Amen. Amen? So a lot of times you just ignore that, jump to it, 
Just tell him. Do what you know. Here. Obviously, the man can't get up. He just said, I don't have a man that'll put me in there. And Jesus says, well, get up and walk. And the guy sure looked at him and said, did you not hear what I just said? If I needed a man to put me in there, I can't just get up and walk. But he didn't do that. He just, Jesus just said, look, get up. You get up. You get up and take up your bed and walk, right? And immediately the man was made whole, took up his bed and walked. And on the same day was a Sabbath. Uh-oh. <laughs> the Jews therefore said unto him that was cured, is, it is a Sabbath day. Is it, it is not lawful for you to carry your bed. They were not at all concerned that the man was crippled and can now walk. They're only concerned that he was carrying his bed <laughs> illegally, okay? Now, <clears throat> notice, as I've heard this preached, I've heard people say, Jesus was walking along and he was so perfectly led by the Father that the Spirit said, go up into here and step across this sick person and step around that sick person and, and go to this person and forget these others and, and heal this one man. And so God picks and chooses who he's going to heal. And, he, and because that man had no man, Jesus went to him. Okay, well, that's kind of good. But that is not what this story says. This story says that Jesus went to him and said as soon as he found out about it, he went. There is no mention of the Father or the Spirit in this verse. You understand? Now we know, and we're going to get into what it means to be led by the Spirit, right? People say that we sometimes say that we don't believe in being led by the Spirit in JGLM. That's not true. We believe in it more than the people that teach it, right? The difference is what they believe in is special leadings at certain times. We believe that according to Scripture, the Bible says that the Spirit, as many as are led by the Spirit, consistently, constantly led by the Spirit, in Romans chapter 8, verse 14, they are the sons of God. So if I'm a son of God, then I am consistently and constantly led. I don't, now, are there special leadings? Yes. But I don't wait for them. When they come, I obey them. If they don't come, I obey Scripture. Right? And the special leadings will never violate Scripture. Right? So if you think you get a leading not to pray for somebody, that's not the right spirit to follow. Okay? Simple as that. Now, I've heard people say that. I've had people ask me, have you ever been told not to pray for somebody? No. Why? Because if I heard that voice, I would not obey it because it violates Scripture. Simple as that. Okay? Now, <clears throat> notice too, the whole idea here, what people try to say, is that Jesus, or Father, the Father, would pick and choose who to heal and when, when the very Scriptures they try to use to prove that totally disproves what they're saying and proves exactly the opposite. Because in verse, what is it, verse 4? Yeah, verse 4. Whosoever got healed of whatsoever, right? That means that it's always God's will for any person to get healed, and the the emphasis is on the healing, not on or yes, yeah, on the healing, not on the person or the sickness, right? If you know that you have enough power to beat anything, you really don't care what they have, right? The only people that have to determine what a person has is a person that's not sure of how much they have to give because they're thinking, I might not have enough to give what they need. Right? Now, this teaching that you have to know exactly what it is and how to deal with it and a different prayer for every kind of sickness, that is so embedded in the church that it has almost stopped people from praying for people. You know, the average person that's taught like that cannot pray for people on the street because most of that turns into a counseling session. Ends up being a long, drawn-out thing, go into people's history, go into their past, go dig out their sins, their grandfather's sins, and everything else. You ain't got time for that when you're waiting on a bus. Right? Jesus didn't do that. Jesus didn't go into detail. There's only really one recorded instant where he said, how long has he been like this? And you know, I, 
I'd heard that same teaching, and it never really, I don't know, dawned on me until one day when I went to a, a house, and I, I, they called me to pray for a child. And whenever I went there, I remember seeing this child, and I turned, and I said, how long has it been like this? But it wasn't the father speaking, saying, find out how long it's been this way, because if it's been there two years, you've got to pray like this. If it's been there five years, you've got to pray like this, and you've got to stir up more because it's been there longer. And it's, it wasn't any of that. It was, I was looking at a child that had been through hell as long as it had been alive. And I, wanted, I said, how long is it? It was just a, a matter of curiosity. It was just a matter of compassion. But the minute they said that, and I, you know what hit my mind immediately was, this isn't right. This shouldn't be like this. This child shouldn't be robbed of their youth. This parent shouldn't be robbed of that child's, you know, being able to play with them and hold them and that kind of stuff. And it had nothing to do with how I was going to respond or anything else, but it did help me to stir up compassion. But that was it. So it was for my benefit, not for their benefit. You know, you understand what I'm saying? It wasn't a matter. I didn't have to know that. But when I heard it, compassion was stirred up. So it's not something you have to have. You should always walk in compassion. Amen? You understand that? So it's not, you, Jesus didn't do it. So we just, if Jesus said we're going to do the same works in John 14, 12, he said the same works that he did, we will do also. And greater works than these shall we do because he went to the Father. Right? So the reason we can do the greater works is because he went to the Father. Right? Not because we fast and pray. Not because we're good. Not because we deserve it or anything else. Because he went to the Father. Why? Because that was when everything, the enemy was totally defeated. He said, not only will we do the same works, but we will do greater works. Right? Now, even if Jesus had inquired in detail every time, then we could inquire every time, but that would just be the same works. The greater works would be for us not to have to inquire at all. Right? So even if Jesus did it, we wouldn't have to. You understand? We should See, the problem with teaching in the church today is that it, it hasn't given us a bigger vision of God. It has further restricted us to where you have to know more and it makes you less effective. We should be more effective. We should be doing greater works. So any teaching should lead us to do greater things, not lesser things. Any teaching should free us more to help more people, not restrict us more to where we don't have time to help people because I don't want to get involved in that now. I'm just trying to grab a you know, loaf of bread and milk. I ain't got time to go into a you know, a 13-hour counseling session. Do you understand? This should work towards simplicity, not toward complication. So, and that's what we've seen. So, so the first one is that God picks and chooses who he heals and when. That verse, John 5, verse 4, proves that is not true. Right? You also hear sometimes testimonies along those lines of certain people that were healed it a certain way and they had a vision and saw this and things happened with that. Okay, that's all fine and good. But you cannot base your doctrine or your practice upon dreams, upon visions, upon any of that. Our, our doctrine can only be founded upon Scripture. Right? Because you could have a dream that says you have to be led every time and I could have a dream that tells me I never have to be led. Now, which one's right? Well, we could stand there and argue all day long. But if we have a book... If we have the Bible as our foundation, then we can go by it. Amen? Now, otherwise, it's all just arbitrary and <clears throat> nothing matters. Right? If, if we need a special leading to do anything, we don't need the Bible. Because it doesn't matter. You're going to have to get a special leading to go do it. So you never need the Bible. So, next, Mark chapter 6. <clears throat> Verse 
starting in verse 1. This is one that most people bring out. And I want to need... Yes, Mark 6. <coughs> and I think the... Is the I think... Isn't, isn't, the, isn't the corollary for this, Mark, Matthew 13? Isn't that right? Mark 6? Is it Matthew 13? I thought it was. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Okay, now, in... Yeah. In Mark 6, this is what you lost. Well, you know, even Jesus couldn't heal everybody in his own hometown, so, you know, how are we going to do it? Right? Well, okay, again, let's go back to, okay, whatever he did, we could do, but we can do greater. So even if he couldn't get everybody healed, we should be able to. Right? You understand? So I'm just trying to give you that principle. Now, but the fact is, the way that that's taught, that would appear to be true, but the scriptures show something else. Okay? Now, if you just read Mark 6, it says in verse 1, And he went out from there and came into his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judah and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. Now notice the word offended at him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. And he could there do no mighty work. Now notice there, that's where they stop. And he could there do no mighty work, save or accept, that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. You hear that? Yeah. So the very scripture they say that Jesus couldn't heal people because of their unbelief, he healed people. Right? So the very thing they say. Now this, again, is a religious tradition because people build this up and what it is, they've heard it so much they don't even look it up for themselves. They just regurgitate the same old, as we'd say, vomit that they heard somebody else dump into them. All right? Instead of going and reading it themselves. And he could there do no mighty work except he laid his hands on a few sick folk and healed them. Then verse 6. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went round about the villages teaching. Now, notice two things. The reason I'm giving you this, I'm not just trying to show it to you. I want you to get it, mark it in your Bible, so that when people bring it up, you can take them to that passage. Because most of them, most of them, if you said, okay, I'll believe you if you can tell me where that's at. Most of the people that quote it don't even know the chapter and verse where it's at, or even the book. Well, it's in the Bible somewhere. Well, prove it. Why should I believe you? And then when they go, they say, okay, read it to me. And if they read it, they will disprove themselves. All right? All you got to do is get them to read it. Notice, it said he could do there no mighty work. Now, it doesn't say what mighty works he couldn't do. It doesn't say what they were. You know, he didn't turn water to wine or walk on water or something. But it says what he did do. Now, notice, he could there do no mighty work except. So he did do mighty works. And the mighty works he did was, he, the very thing he actually did there, the only mighty works he actually did, was heal people. And what he did was he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. Now notice it doesn't say he laid his hands on some people and a few of them got healed. It said he laid his hand on a few and they got healed. So every person he laid hands on got healed. So it's still 100%. Right? He still healed all. Now you say, well, why does it say few? Because if you go back up there in verse... Um, where are we at? <clears throat> I'm trying to find it here. Oh, in verse 3. End of verse 3. 
and they were offended at him. That's why it's a few. Right? When people are offended at you, they don't generally come to your meetings. And they don't generally come to you to pray for them. But the few he did lay hands on got healed. Right? So the very verse that they try to say he couldn't heal them, every person he laid hands on got healed. All right? So these are just things that I'm trying to give these to you so you can refute these things just right up. You know, as soon as somebody brings them up, just take them back and quote it to them. Okay? Now, go to the next one. <clears throat> John chapter 9. This is a standard. It's amazing how many people will fight you to stay sick. <laughs> or worse yet, fight you to keep somebody they know sick. Yeah. <clears throat> we had a lady one time in, we were in, uh, where were we? Somewhere over in Arkansas. Where were we? We were in Arkansas. This was several years back, and I was with uh, Wayne and Sandy Womack. They're people we know if you see them on our website, on our website there, or in there, they're connected to us. And I was there doing a DHT, and they said, would you go pray for this girl? She's in a coma in a nursing home. She's like 20 years old, 23, 20, real young, in a nursing home, because that's the only place they could keep her, because she'd been in a coma for some time. We went over there, walked in. Her boyfriend was there. And when we walked in to pray for her, the family had asked us to pray, and the boyfriend immediately kind of tried to put himself between us. You know, what are you doing here? Well, we're going to pray for her. Well, you know, he was really going off on, you know, this is God's will and all this stuff. And he was just really fighting us. And so Wayne was standing there, and Wayne was kind of talking to him. And I said, and so I turned to Wayne and kind of got off his head. I said, get between me and this guy and go over there talking with him, keep him busy. And if you give me five minutes, I'll get this girl up. You know, while you're over there arguing. Okay? And so Wayne, Wayne, Wayne goes over and he kind of draws, he says, come here, man, let's talk. And he, they get him over and they kind of turn their back. And I go there and just lay my hands on the girl. I said, in the name of Jesus, you wake up, brain, be healed, be well. And Jesus, it's just simple, right? And so I had this little Bible that I carried with me. And I laid it down on the nightstand next to the bed she was in. And so when we got done, it was like two minutes. I didn't see anything. Nothing changed. Turned around, went back over to Wayne. I said, Wayne, uh, let's, let's go. So he started, you know, okay, well, nice to meet you. And we left. I get back to the meeting. I'm supposed to preach. I start looking for my Bible. It's still on the nightstand on the next town over. It's like, well, it's only like eight or ten miles away. But so Wayne said, well, I'll go get it. You just start preaching because I don't need a Bible to preach. It's, it's, it's in here. Okay, it's not just in there. And so I just started preaching, and he went back to get my Bible. When he went back to get my Bible, he went in the room, and the girl was gone. And so he started trying to find out, because they took all the stuff, you know, with her, you know, the Bible and the nightstand, all that. And he said that when he went to the nurse and asked where she was, she had basically woken. They called her parents. Her parents came up. They took her out, and the Bible was left at the nurse stand, and Wayne got my Bible and came back. We're in the middle of a meeting, he, and when he walked in, he got to give testimony about the girl coming out of the coma, right? Now, that, that's another thing. <clears throat> At some point, if someone has been well mistaught, then, <laughs> okay? In other words, if they've been indoctrinated into unbelief, okay, then what they're going to say is, at some point, they're going to say, well, you know, you know, even Paul, you know, forget Paul's storm, we'll get in that at some point, forget Job, all that stuff. But at some point they're going to say, well, you know, even Paul left somebody sick somewhere. I mean, I remember reading it in the Bible. He, he left, so even Paul couldn't get everybody healed, right? And actually that was Trophimus. Remember he left Trophimus sick at Miletum? Well, 
you could say that about that girl. When I got back to the service that night, people could have said, well, what happened? Didn't you go pray for a girl? I would have had to say, well, I, I left her sick in bed. Right? But I didn't know that five minutes after I left, she was up and healed. Now, I wouldn't say I left her sick in bed because I believe when I minister, healing is there. They get it. It's done. There he goes. But, but I'm saying if somebody was looking, they would have said, well, Curry left that girl sick in the nursing home. Right? But if they had went back 10 minutes later, the girl wouldn't have been sick in the nursing home. You see? So just because somebody says, well, yeah, I've left people sick in the Walmart you know, that I've prayed for. But the next time I see them, they're well. So you can't use things like that to, as a doctrine, right? Because you don't know how long afterwards. And it's the same thing. Gordon Lindsay said the same thing. He had prayed for people, and you know they were healed shortly afterwards. So you can't just throw those things out there and go, well, you know, even they make it sound like Trophimus never got well. But he did. He showed up later, right? And so same thing with uh, Epaphroditus. He, he was sick. And then later on, you see him in the book of Acts, he shows up again later, right? And, and Paul even said, God had mercy on him and had mercy on me too and, and healed him and he was up and he was almost, almost dead. He gave himself for the gospel. Basically, that wasn't sickness. He, it was physical exhaustion. He worked himself to the point where he was exhausted. And so Paul left him and caught up and he caught up with him later, right? But people try to grab on those things and try to use them to prove against healing and this is one of the amazing things to me is that Christians are the ones we want to, generally speaking, I don't want to, but I'm saying what happens is, is that people will, it's like they vote against God. You know? And these are Christians, these are God's people that are going against him. They would rather believe against him than believe for him. You know, I, I would rather be wrong and believe for him than to be right and believe against him. Right? I mean, at least he knows I'm his friend. Right? I mean, if you've got a friend, they're, they're with you. You know? I don't know if y'all... <laughs> I like historical movies. And there was a movie come out a couple of years ago called The Alamo. You, anybody see that? It's, it's, if, if you had, what's wrong with you? You've got to see The Alamo. <laughs> see, if you're from Texas, you've seen the movie. Okay, I can tell you. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so, but in that movie, uh, Jim Bowie is in, the, in there and... and his friend there, he said, yeah, I was in this fight, and I, I turned around, and all my friends were gone. And the guy, by his friend there said, well, Jim, you were wrong. He said, I know, that's when I needed you the most. That's the way we are sometimes. Sometimes, you know, when you're wrong, that's when you need your friends the most, not when you're right. You, you got a lot of friends when you're right. It's when you're wrong that you need them. That's when you find your real friends. So, notice here in John chapter 1, or chapter 9, sorry, verse 1. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And the disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents? Now, what would we call that today? Generational. Generational okay, there you go. <clears throat> that he was born blind. <clears throat> now, I've, I've heard all that stuff. I mean, I could show you the books where it was said, okay, if he was born blind, it's because, and it was generational sin, then his parents shut their eyes to the gospel. That's, that, that would be the punishment for shutting your eyes to the gospel. But the funny thing is, the Bible says if they don't believe, it's because their eyes have been blinded. So then it ain't their fault. I could just throw that out there. Anyway, okay. <laughs> and so he says, his, his disciples said, who, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither. You hear that? There's Jesus' answer to, to generational curses. Right? This is the only time 
Jesus came anywhere near talking about generational curses, right? And his answer was neither. So obviously, the disciples thought that might be the case, right? It was apparently a teaching that was going around at that time too. <clears throat> Devil hadn't learned any new tricks. He still used the same old lies. <clears throat> but here, Jesus said neither. Now watch. Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents. Now what does that tell you? That tells you that all sickness doesn't come, or even blindness or anything else, doesn't all come from a committed sin. Right? So, when you, so if somebody tells you that if you have a problem, it comes from a sin in your life, this right here proves that's not true. Right? Fact is, we live in a world that the enemy works in. Now, you can get sick by sowing and reaping. You can get sick by you know, continuing to do something that will break your body down. It could just be a flat-out attack. You know, you hadn't done a thing in the world wrong, but the enemy doesn't like you, right? And so he attacked you. That can be true. Now, that can be a case or it can be the fact. But according to Scripture, and I can give you three Scriptures just real quick. Right now, as a matter of fact, we'll probably do it toward the end of the, of the training. But I can show you and teach you how you can live above attack, right? Now, persecution can't help you much there. You're going to get persecuted, right? But I can show you how you can live where you never have to fall, where you, where the enemy and the wicked one will not be able to touch you, right? That's a good place to live. Amen? Yes. And so, and there's scripture for it and tells you how to do it. Before we get done, I will show you how to do it. Right? It's, it's, a, it's a good place. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, believe me. Yeah, it's, it's a good place to live. It's a, I'm, I'm telling you. Because cause then, see, if you, if you believe, well, let me just give you one scripture. Luke 10, 19. Luke 10, 19. Isn't that right? In Luke 10, 19, he says, Behold, I give you power to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, right? And nothing shall by any means hurt you. So there's one scripture right there. So you can live in a place where nothing can hurt you. Now, the, notice he put that in the scripture that talks about you treading on serpents and scorpions. In other words, don't be afraid to jump on the devil. You can jump on him and he can't touch you back, you know? Well, you've got to be careful. I'll make sure there's no sin in my life. Make sure there's nothing there because I don't want to pray for somebody and that devil jump on me. Okay. Dr. Summerall used to say, flies don't land on a hot stove. Right? <laughs> so, you stay on fire and you ain't got to worry about it. Amen? And if you're going out and healing the sick, guess what? You're on fire. Okay? So just go after it. And don't worry about what the devil's going to try to do back. All right? Now, <laughs> that's a lie of the devil to keep you from hitting him. Right? If somebody tells you, don't you hit me, because if you hit me, I'm going to hit you back harder. That's a person that don't, just don't want you to hit him. Right? Now you say, I'm going to hit you so hard, you ain't going to be able to hit me back. Right? If I take you out in one hit, you ain't going to do nothing back to me. Right? You have to have the victorious mindset that says, guess what? I'm stronger, I'm tougher, I'm bigger, I'm better than you ever thought about being. Right? Because my big brother has already whooped you. Right? I'm here to remind you of that. Right? That's your job. Okay? Now, now you don't go in there mocking him and all that. You know, you know what I'm saying. Right? But at the same time, you know your authority. You step in. You do your job. Now, in where was I on this? I got way off there somewhere. <laughs> okay, yeah. As when he says that you can live in protection like that, it's in conjunction in Luke ten nineteen with you going and doing the work. He said, "I give you power." We are need. I wish I had a dry erase board. I need to try erase board here. But in that scripture, there are different words used. When he says, behold, that means look, see, take notice. And of course, that's the one verse that a lot of Christians totally ignore. 
Anytime he tells you to behold and look and take notice, that's one most people end up ignoring. You know, Paul said, I would have you not to be ignorant concerning spiritual things, and that's one thing they're ignorant in. So you just ignore it, or not you necessarily, but people do. So when he said, behold, take notice of this. I give. Here you go. Right? I hand it to you. It's not mine. I'm, it was mine. I gave it to you. I hand it to you. I give you authority. The word there for power is exousia. It means authority. Now, the very word exousia doesn't just mean authority. It means freedom to act. That's what exousia means. So what he was saying was, I give you authority. I give you the authority to act freely. Right? Over, or, or power, to tread upon serpents and scorpions. And that's talking about healing the sick, casting out devils and all that. And he says to work on the power of the enemy. And he says, and over all the power, second word for power, but the second word is dunamis. So he said, I give you authority. And the word dunamis, of course, means ability. So he said, I give you the authority to freely act over the ability of the enemy. The enemy has ability. He does not have authority. Again, you might want to mark that down. That's another lie that's been taught to the church. Well, you gave the devil authority whenever you did this. Then there is never any hope because if you only get things happen to you because you gave him authority, then there's no hope for you because you gave him the authority and we can't help you. The teaching generally is if you gave him authority, then he has a right to be there. Well, if he has a right to be there, then I don't have a right to cast him out. right? But the fact is the devil does not have authority. He never has authority. Jesus took the authority. right? He may have ability. People mistake ability for authority. People think just because he can do it, he has the right to do it. That is not the same thing, right? Having the right or having the ability is not having the right. The devil has the ability. He does not have the right. Now, the beauty of this is this. In Luke ten nineteen, Jesus gave us the authority to freely beat the devil and over all of his ability, right? And then he said, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. So you have the right to move in on him and he can't do anything back. So we have authority and moving into a lot of these things and we'll cover them throughout the three days, but a lot of this is hooked together, so I just bring it out, and then we reinforce it later with Scripture as we go into it. <clears throat> but when he said, or what's been taught in the church is that, well, we have you know, delegated authority. Okay, that is not true. The disciples before the cross operated under delegated authority. Right? He told them, I give you authority to do this. He gave them that authority. And if you will notice... He sent them out on several missions by themselves and every time told them, go and do this. And then they came back. So when they came back, that mission stopped. So technically, when they came back, their authority ceased. Now, if you'll notice, Mar uh, Matthew 17, which we will get to in a few minutes. Most people already know it. That's one of the deals we're going to talk about. When we get there, you're going to notice that when Matthew 17 took place, it was after they had just come back off of a mission. So technically, they were no longer operating in Jesus' authority at that point. Now, save that, and we'll come back to it, okay? Notice he says here, uh, where are we at? <clears throat> yeah. Now, if I had this in your manuals, and it will be in the new manual when it comes out, then I would also have the Greek text to show you how it's written, because that's really what shows the truth of this passage. And without looking at the Greek text... One thing you, you hardly ever hear me say is take my word for it. But if you don't have a Greek text, you kind of have to until you can get back and look it up. But don't just take my word for it. Take my word for it for right now and later check it out. Okay? Or if you have a Greek text, look at it. 
But watch this. He says, Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. Verse 4, I must work the works of him that sent me. While it is day, the night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And he talks about this whole situation. Now watch. In the original Greek, it was written in one long line. There was no spacing between words. There was no punctuation. Right? All punctuation, spacing, scripture numbers, all that stuff is all man-made. It is not divine. Okay? Now, if you were to take this scripture and take out numbers, you know, verse numbers and all that, and take out all punctuation and take out capitals and, you know, small letters and all that kind of stuff and put it all together, this is the way it would read. Now, Master who did sin, this man or his parents, that he's born blind. Jesus answered, Neither has this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God... Now notice. Notice what he said. He is answering... They said, who sinned, who didn't, that this man's born blind. Jesus, people think that Jesus was still answering their question. Right? If Jesus was still answering their question, then yes, this man was born blind so that Jesus could work a miracle. If he was still answering this question. But he answered their question. And then he started another topic. Watch. <clears throat> Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents. Okay? Now stop right there. Now, if you go right from there and start basically the continuation, but a, a new topic, not a new topic, but an explanation or what I'm going to do, is what Jesus said. But, that the works of God should be made manifest him, I must work the works of him that sent me. In other words, he's not saying this man's born blind so that God can do a miracle. He's saying, look, this man didn't sin, he's born blind, but I'm going to do these works because that's why I'm here. If God's works are going to be seen in him, I've got to do them. That's all he's saying. Do you understand? He was not talking about how, Jesus, how this man was born this way so that Jesus could heal him so that God would get glory. All right? Now, let's suppose for a second that that were true. That that exact, you know, the way it's generally taught, let's say it's true. The people that say that, then, when they come across the person that they believe was born that way, and it wasn't by parents' sins, as we said, not by generational curse or any of that kind of stuff, then the obvious answer is, when you leave them, they better be healed. Right? If you're going to say that, if you're going to say what Jesus said, you can't take part of it. Well, that person's born, you know, so God will get the glory. All right, give them the glory. Heal the person. If you don't, you can't use that scripture. Right? You can't use it because Jesus used that scripture in there. He was saying that to say, I'm going to do this. Now watch, I'm not going to leave this man this way. I'm going to set him free. So if you're going to try to say that, you better leave him healed. Right? So when somebody says that, says, okay, well, then you, you do it. Go ahead, let me see you do something. Oh, well, you know. Now we've got to go back in. Then they start talking like the disciples. Well, who sinned? Was it his parent? No, no way. <laughs> can't go there. Right? We have a perfect example. You can't go there. All right? Now, let's go to the next one. He says, verse <clears throat> 6. When he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground, made clay of the spittle, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said unto him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. He went his way therefore and washed and came seeing. Right? Now, if you go... Let's see. Yeah. We're going to go on into this a little bit here. Because <clears throat> I want to kind of go to the, to the end of this. Okay? Most people stop at that point. It said, The neighbors, verse 8, The neighbors therefore... And they which before had seen him that he was blind said, Is not this he that sat and begged? 
Some said, this is he. Others said, well, he's like him, but he said, I am he. So now they're sure this is a blind man who's been healed. Therefore said they unto him, how were your eyes opened? And he said, a man that's called Jesus made clay, anointed my eyes, and said unto me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash, and I went and washed, and I received sight. Then they said unto him, where is he? He said, I know not. So they brought to the Pharisees him that aforetime was blind. So now they take him. Now come on, you come with us. So they took him. And it was a Sabbath day. Uh-oh. <laughs> okay. Now notice what even the Pharisees doing this. It was other people that took him to the Pharisees. Right? <clears throat> it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then again, the Pharisees also asked him how he'd received his sight. He said unto them, He put clay upon mine eyes, and I washed, and do see. Therefore said some of the Pharisees, This man's not a God, because he keeps not the Sabbath day. Others said, How can a man that's a sinner... Do such miracles. And there was a division among them. Verse 17. They say unto the blind man again, What sayest thou of him? That he hath opened your eyes. He said, He's a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he'd been blind. <laughs> now they're not, they don't even want to say he was actually blind. Right? <clears throat> and received his sight until they called the parents of him that had received his sight. And they asked them, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered and said, Well, we know this is our son and that he was born blind. Now, these are the people that they were trying to say who sinned. Mm -hmm. Right? First off, they were trying to say who sinned, and now they turn around and say, Oh, look, you know, is this... So they're going to call them liars in a minute, right? What they were doing just before. He says, Who hath... <clears throat> now, verse 21. But by what means he now sees, we know not. Or who, who has opened his eyes, we know not. He is of age, ask him. He shall speak of himself. Now you'll notice the funny part here it says in verse 22, these words spoke his parents because they feared the Jews. I mean, they're throwing him to the wolves. You know, hey, <laughs> we know he's blind, we know he's born blind, we don't know how he sees, you ask him, he's of his own, we got nothing to do with this. Right? We don't want to lose our seat in the synagogue. We're, we're good there, okay? <clears throat> notice, it says, for the Jews had already said that if any man did confess that he was Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. Right? Therefore said his parents, he's of age. Ask him. Then again called they the, blind, the man that was blind. This third time now he's telling the story. Okay? And said unto him, give God the praise. We know that this man, Jesus, is a sinner. He answered and said, whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. One thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. Then said they to him again, what did he to you? How open he your eyes. Okay, th third story, and he's telling it again. Right? See, you know what they're doing. They're giving him time to change his story. Because if he'll just change his story, they can all go back you know, to doing what they were doing. And they're trying to get him to change it. He answered, I've told you already. And you didn't hear. Well, now he's getting some guts here. He's starting to, you know, as, as, as we say in Texas, he's starting to bow up against some Pharisees, right? And he says, you didn't hear. Wherefore would you hear it again? Would, do you want to be his disciples too? Now, you know that went over real good, okay? But now, the reason I'm saying this is I want to bring you to this point, because this is going to be a major aspect of what we're going to be doing. Verse 28, Then they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. Now, during this conference or during this training, what you're going to have to decide is whose disciple are you? Because at some point, you're going to have to make a break and you're going to make a decision between Moses and Jesus. 
If you're going to be Moses' disciple, you're going to stay under the law. You're going to stay under the old covenant. You're always going to be trying to get God to do something. You're always going to be trying to find out what God's going to do next. You're going to have to go find out what God's will is. But if you become Jesus' disciple, then, and here's the beauty of it, like I said, we're going to talk about this a little bit later on, you're not going to be operating under delegated authority because the minute you become his disciple and get born again, you are in him, recreated, and it's no longer delegated authority, it is inherited authority. Because whatever he has, you have. You're a joint heir. That's not delegated. That's inherited. Now, if you have inherited authority, you can do whatever you want with that authority whenever you want. That's what true authority is. It is the ability to act with Technically, the, the definition of authority is pre-permission. When somebody gives you authority, they are giving you pre-permission to do whatever that authority encompasses. When Jesus said, heal the sick, cast out devils, guess what? That was pre-permission to do it anytime you see it. All right? Just simply that. All that other stuff, nothing else contradicts that. And, and no other teaching, no other doctrine trumps the words of Jesus. All right? If it does then whoever's word you're believing, you're their disciple, not Jesus's. Right? You may be Springfield's disciple. I don't know. You may be Anderson's, uh, you know, Anderson, Indiana. You may be their disciple. You may be Rome's disciple. I don't know. But if you're going to be Jesus's disciple, his words have to be given preeminence in everything. Amen? Amen. All right. Now, let's look at this real quick. Oh, I'm going to finish reading this, and we'll go to break. <clears throat> he says, um, <laughs> yeah. Verse 29, we know that God spoke unto Moses. As for this fellow, we know not whence he is. The man answered and said unto them, Why, herein is a marvelous thing, that you don't know where he's from. And yet he has opened my eyes. Well, boy, you guys are sharp. You're the religious leaders, and you don't know what happened or how he's doing this. And he, he's opening the eyes of the blind, and you're not. And, hmm, maybe you're not as sharp a religious leaders as you think you are. A little bit of paraphrase there, right? just so you know. People say, what, what, what translation is that? <laughs> it says now, verse 31, Now we know that God hears not sinners. But if any, now, now, can I think about this? They were already wrong. God hears sinners. Right? If He doesn't, we're all still sinners. Okay? So He hears sinners. Okay? And when you called out to Him, guess what? You're a sinner. Right? So they were wrong from the start. Okay? But if any man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, hear him he heareth. Well, okay, that's true too. <clears throat> Since the world began, was it not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind? And if this man were not of God, he could do nothing. They answered and said unto him, Thou wast altogether born in sins, and dost thou teach us? And they cast him out. <laughs> okay? Best thing that happened to him right there. <clears throat> Getting kicked out of some churches is the best thing that ever happened to some of you. Right? Get you out there where you can actually do something. Amen. Jesus heard that they'd cast him out. Yeah, yeah. Good news travels fast. Okay? <laughs> Jesus heard that they'd cast him out. And when he found him, he said unto him, Do you believe on the Son of God? And he answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said unto him, You have both seen him, and it is he that is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, Now watch, For judgment... I am come into this world that they which see might not see and that they which see might be made blind. Now notice, notice this. And some of the Pharisees which were with him heard these words and said unto him, Are we blind also? And Jesus said unto them, If you were blind, you should have no sin. 
But now you say we see, therefore your sin remains. In other words, you won't, you won't repent of this thing. The reason I brought that up about the judgment thing, because Jesus said, for this reason came I into the world for judgment. You need to realize what the judgment was and what it was. I'm not going to get into all that right now, but I am going to show you this. In Matthew 12, 18, it says, <clears throat> God speaking out of the Old Testament, actually, what is it, Isaiah 61? Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. You hear that? He will, he will show judgment to the Gentiles. Now, when did Jesus, especially when we think of judgment, we automatically think bad, right? Some doom and gloom, catastrophe. But it says here that Jesus showed judgment. Well, when did he ever do any catastrophe to anybody? See, all judgment is not bad. You can be judged righteous. You can be judged right. And when it says in Psalm 103... It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. This is verse 3. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Who forgives all thy iniquities, who heals all thy diseases. Yeah, you hear that word? All? Both of them, okay? Who redeems thy life from destruction. Who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. Who satisfies your mouth with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Verse 6. The Lord executes righteousness and judgment for all who are oppressed. Hear that? He executes judgment for. Now, executing judgment for is not against. Right? What he was doing, the way he was showing judgment to the Gentiles is he was executing righteousness and judgment by setting the oppressed free. He said, listen, God's not against you. My judgment is be free. You're exonerated. You're free. Your sins are forgiven. He was showing them judgment but it was in a good way not in the Old Testament idea of judgment of calamity see you have to understand it. and I did a whole teaching on this if you were at the lighting conference we did here this year or if you get a hold of the series or whatever it is there's a session I think we're actually going to have it as a single it's going to be called the truth about judgment and it goes into judgment it shows what it is what it's not when it is when it's not everything about it and it goes into detail so if you hadn't got that I don't know if we made it a partner CD or not but anyway It'd be a good one to get to share with people that, oh, you know, the Katrina was a judgment of God. Uh, the tsunami in Thailand was a judgment of God. All this stuff, no, just go back in and find out, right? This details all of that, right? And proves it, what, what the truth is. <clears throat> if you go on down in verse 10 there, now I'm going to read the rest of this. He, hath, he made known his ways unto Moses, his acts unto the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. Over and over again, this is good stuff, right? Not bad, good. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. Verse 10, this is the big one. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, right? So if I didn't teach any more on generational curses, that should do it. That right there, and watch this next one. Nor rewarded us according to our iniquities, right? So if somebody would, write that in a note and send it down to Larry Hutt. Right? He needs to know about that stuff. So, <clears throat> anyway, Larry Huck, he wrote the book on breaking generational curses, and then that, he pretty much sold that out, and then he wrote a second book, The Ten Curses That Keep the Blessings from Happening, or something like that, and then he goes on and on about it. And Anyway, it's, uh, yeah, trying to get, in verse 12 it says, As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. All that's good. All that's judgment. 
that was judgment. The judgment was he took the, all the curses, he took all the iniquities, he took all the bad, er, our sins, everything, removed it from us and made us righteous. Amen? You get that? that? That's the judgment he showed to the Gentiles. Right? So, all right, let's go ahead and take a break. Well, good morning. morning. Good to see all of you here. We're going to minister the word of God to you and fully expect Jesus to set you free. If you're under any bondage, sickness, disease, anything, God wants you free. Free is good. Amen. I've been free and I've been bound and free is better. Amen. So, if you want, you can go ahead and turn in your Bible. We're just going to go to a couple of places and then move on because I want to share some things. And actually, even this morning during the worship it was touched upon that Jesus is the vine and we are the branches. And in that, his life flows through us. It flows out of him, into us, and out of us to the rest of the world. And really, if you ever just get a revelation of that, it's amazing because everything opens up from that. I think... Probably one of the greatest revelations I've ever had is just, I actually, it, was a, it wasn't so much what was said in the sermon that I read. I actually read a, a sermon by John Lake, and it wasn't really the sermon. It was the title. The title is what stuck. And the title of the sermon that he preached was called, Not Try, But Trust. And in it, I just saw it. almost all Christians are always trying you know, they're always looking over there. You know, it's the, it's the old thing about the, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. We always think somebody else's spiritual experience is better than ours. We always think that they're more spiritual than we are. They always, we always think that it's going to be better over there somewhere. And, and, it's, and we have to realize, yeah, there's, there's, you may be going through problems and troubles. And obviously without troubles is better. But it can be good right in the middle of troubles. Not that the troubles are good. But his presence is with you in the middle of it. I mean, how many of you would rather walk on the, around the beach and look out on the lake and watch the storm on the lake and not be in the storm? Or how many of you would rather be in the boat with Jesus in the middle of the storm? I'd rather be with Jesus in the middle of the storm in the boat than on the beach where it's really pretty and no storm or anything and all you can see is what's going on at a distance. Because at least there, you're right there with him. And one of the things that I've seen... Is that, and I want to take you this because over and over this week, and it's kind of funny because my daughter and I were talking today while we were driving back and forth to meetings, and, and it's kind of funny because this is who I am. You know, who you've seen this week, and you say a difference, and this is who I am. And this is really who I've always wanted to be, basically. I mean, this is, I have peace, I am, I, I'm just, God is with me and I'm with him. And, and you know, in the times past, I, I started thinking about it. Maybe when I came last time, maybe it was kind of like Paul not comparing myself to him. Well, I guess I am in a way, but I hope you get, understand what I mean by it. Paul said at one time, he said, when I come, uh, these guys that are talking and causing trouble and saying all this stuff, he said... 
we're going to see who's got the goods. He was very blunt. And he said, if you make me, I'll come with a whip. But I'd prefer you just repent, and then I can come with this fellowship. <laughs> Maybe it's not me that's changed. <laughs> Maybe I didn't have to bring the whip. <laughs> This is just who we are. Amen. That's all. That's it. It's just, it's just fellowshipping. It's just, you know, it's funny because I have noticed this as I go places. The, the worship, the people we fellowship with, the more new covenant they are, the less I have to bring correction. Right? So we fellowship more. But the less new covenant, the more correction you have to bring. Well, correction is never pleasant. That's why it's correction, <laughs> okay? And But the whole thing, all of this is just going toward walking with God. Just walking with God. And I know many people, again, people expect, okay, Curry Blake, it's going to be a healing service. Curry Blake is being conformed to the image of Christ. And the more I'm conformed to the image of Christ, the less I preach about the the events that surround Christ and more I preach about the life of Christ flowing and the more we can preach about the life of Christ flowing out of you the less doctrine we preach in the sense now understand what I mean by that all teaching is doctrine to some degree good or bad but the less specific things we have to talk on for instance as I said before Jesus never taught healing he taught union with the Father he taught the Father's heart for people and he told the religious people you don't get it you know, you read Matthew 4, 5, into 6. Over and over again, you see things where he's saying, you've heard it said. That if you do this, that it's right to do, you know, here's the law, here's the law, here's the law. But I'm telling you. And all he was trying to say was there's, there's, there's a, a better way. The, the law doesn't do it. It's not enough to know the doctrine. Everybody in this room has probably heard the doctrine of divine healing. You know, God wants you well. Healing's for today. Healing's in the atonement. It was provided by Jesus' stripes. Pretty much everybody's heard that. And yet there's still people that aren't well. So the doctrine doesn't heal. Right? Christianity is not Gnosticism. Where you learn the secret. And you're initiated into the secret doctrine. You know, like being a mason or something where you get in and you say vows and you get in deeper and deeper and deeper. And when you get in deep enough, you get the real secrets. You know? It's not like that. Matter of fact, if anything, you don't get deeper in Christianity. It's funny because it just gets easier and lighter and less detailed. And your walk toward Christ is less and less rules and regulations and more and more just living. And it gets better and better because you don't have to remember all the rules. Now, now you're living them, but you're not, you don't have to try to live them. It just flows out of you. And that life that is in Christ just flows out of you. And if it's flowing out of you, it should be flowing within you. And if it's flowing within you, then you should be healed. It should flow into your life. It should, it should flow into your body. And it should just be, it shouldn't be a hard thing. We shouldn't have to try to live the Christian life. And, and really, honestly, if you really haven't tried, it may be because you haven't received that new heart yet. And this, for whatever reason, this has been the constant theme this whole week and a half, two weeks we've been here, is that it, Christianity should not be hard. The law was hard. 
The way of the transgressor is hard. Jesus' yoke is easy. Amen? And if Christianity is hard to you, you're under the wrong yoke. Now, I'm not saying, well, just give up and let anything happen, live anyway. No, that's not it either. If you hear that, it's like we said the other day. If you really want to know what's in people's hearts, remove all restrictions. If you remove all restrictions, what you see people, how you see people live, that's what's really in their heart. And that tells you whether they really need to be born again yet or not. You can see it in every, in every area. And so I just wanted to share a few things with you. And it's kind of funny because, you know, God knows. I mean, he wrote, had the Apostle Paul and various people write different letters to different churches. So he knows the distinction between congregations. But at the same time, he also knows that we're one body. Regardless of what congregation we meet in, we're still the body of Christ. And people are, you know, in, in every, there are some congregations as a congregation, they are more mature than others. But even in every congregation, even a very mature congregation, there's some that aren't as mature. So you have overall and then you have individuals. And, you know, last night at the, at the healing service last night, I, I don't know what everybody else thought about it, but I know that for me, in just allowing the Spirit of God to just bring the things out we did, in my opinion, it was probably one of the most direct and, and the, the terminology I would say would be it'd be the most you know, hard, hard line, straightforward preaching of new covenant truth that I may have ever done. I, I don't know. I mean, when I say hard line, I don't mean hard. I mean just straight and pure. And the funny thing was, mainly all I did was just read scripture. You know, I didn't do a lot of commentary. I did, you know, bits and pieces, but most of it was just read it and say, this is, it means it. This is who you are. And so it's funny because even in that, there's aspects of that that if people, if your heart hadn't been changed, you won't get it. But even though, though I preached so straightforward, which to be very honest, you know, it was almost as if I forgot or didn't take into account that there were unsaved people there. I, you know, just read it because we've got to admit Colossians at the very beginning, it says this is written to the saints. Not to the unsaved. It was written to the saints. And so basically I was preaching to, to the saints at a healing service. Right? And yet in that, I think we had, well, I don't know how many people got healed. But I know we had some definite salvations. Three salvations right there. Just And it wasn't even a plea of getting saved. It was as if they heard God and heard this is the life we're supposed to be in. Because it was pretty straightforward. I mean, we didn't sugarcoat it at all. You know, most people, honestly, most religious people would listen to that and said, that's out there. You know? But the Bible's out there. <laughs> okay? It's out there. And our problem is, most of the time, we live in a, in a carnal state, and we never reach even the you know, the maturity of the word so that we can actually walk in it. We're always playing around inside. It's like we've got this huge, you know, encasement and we never find the, the walls because we're just playing in the middle of it. We never even find out what the limits are. But the limits are the scripture. And he says, here's, here's how you walk this out. You may not understand anything I'm saying. I don't know. 
<laughs> I just see the way that what God is doing and what he's doing here in South Africa and how the word of God is coming out here, which is very telling to me. Because it, for one thing, it really does show, to me, it shows a massive growth in the church here in South Africa. Just an advancement. I mean, just a really massive advancement in just half a year. Why? Because generally I can't preach like this. You know, usually we have to keep it to the lowest common denominator. We got to keep it simple and just come in and, okay, you're not going to get it, so I, have to, I just have to get your healing for you. But you people are coming up. You're maturing. You're, this is starting to flow out of you. And you, there, there's those of you that are going after this. Now, I'm sure there's some of you that aren't. You just show up for church and go home. I'm sure of that. But for whatever reason, the Spirit of God is paying attention to those of you that are pulling, those of you that are going after it. And so I just wanted to share a couple of things with you just real quick. You know, it uh, it says in the old, well, the the church tradition says that the Apostle John, when he would get up and preach, all he would ever get up and say is, little children love one another. That was his sermon. And you would think when you heard that after about a month, that you'd say, okay, okay, John, we got it. Let's move on. And he'd just get up and say it again, which means you didn't get it because he would keep preaching it until everybody was walking in it. And for the first roughly 300 years of the church, faith was strong. It was pure. The church was advancing. Then it became the state religion of Rome and took a nosedive. Jesus was mixed in with every other god. And it was sad because it's amazing. You know, many times we look at people that we would think of as heathen or especially people who, you know, uneducated heathen, superstitious people that believe in spirits and, you know, uh, ancestral spirits and things like that. You know, we, we look at that and we go, and, and a lot of educated people look at them and say, oh, they're just uneducated. They don't know any better. That's just superstition. No, there's a spirit realm and they're actually more wise than most educated people. There's a reality to the spirit realm. And one of the things, and this is what I want to, I want to get to, so I'm going to read these two scriptures and then we're going to go to that, but I wanted to, to take you first to, to Matthew, Chapter uh, chapter 5, and we're just going to read two scriptures there and then jump on over. But I just want to remind you, this, this, this isn't the sermon, this is just reminding you of this. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, it says, You are the salt of the earth. You, Christians. Right? You understand now who he was talking to? It says up there at the very beginning, and he opened his mouth and taught them, his disciples. He was telling his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. <clears throat> but if the salt have lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but be cast out and trodden under foot of men. You are the salt of the earth. You are to keep that saltiness you understand? And salt can do two things. It can burn a wound, but at the same time, it's healing a wound. So you need to realize sometimes, yes, sometimes you may be offensive to some people. You may grate people the wrong way. But just preach truth. 
love the people, speak the truth in love. And if you can speak the truth not in love, and you can be speaking the truth and hurt people. But speak the truth in love. Tell the people what the Word of God says because you love them. Amen? That's, that's the, the safety net, so to speak. Then the next one. You are the light of the world. Jesus said he was the light of the world. But here he says you're the light of the world. Why? Because of your connection to him. Don't separate what God has joined together. Quit seeing yourself as separate. It's pretty, it's amazing to me. You need to look at the church. Alright? Or let's say, look at, let's go back to, to where Jesus was crucified. Now, you gotta look both ways from there. Most people look to Jesus at the cross and then they try to go on from there and that's good and you need to do that. But as a Christian, you need to see the cross, see Jesus dead, buried, and resurrected. And remember, when you see him on the cross, it's not just him hanging there. You were crucified with him. You must identify with Jesus Christ. You must identify that when he was crucified, you were crucified. When he was buried, you were buried. When he was raised, you were raised. And when you were raised, you were raised to walk in newness of life. Not oldness of life. He didn't fix the old wineskin that he came to live in. He gave you a new wineskin called the new birth, the new creation, and that is who you are. You are not the same you used to be. Now, your head may be trying to get you to do the same things, think the same things, act the same, all that, but that is not who you are. That's why he tells us, renew your mind so you can prove the will of God. And we're going to look at this in just a moment. We're going to go over to, to uh, Peter and look at that. But notice what he said, you are the light of the world. He's the light, and if he's the light, you're the light, because you're connected to him. You must see that cross, and at the cross, you look forward into the epistles to find out all that God is working in and through and, and into your life, what he did for you. And always remember the past tense. All that you read in the epistles was done on the cross. Right? So it's already done. It's not, it's not going to be done. It's what you already have. I have, you know, some gadgets. I have an iPhone that I use when I'm in the States. I have, you know, obviously a laptop and different things. But honestly, usually I end up having to go to one of my kids for them to tell me how to work it. Right? I don't know all the stuff. And I'm, you know, I'm fine with this. You know, this is, it does that. Oh, did you know it did this? No, I didn't know that. That's, that's neat. Now I've added something else. That's the way Christians are. Salvation, yeah, free from sin. Glory to God. Going to be with Jesus in eternity. Wonderful. Oh, did you know there's more? Oh, check this out. There's a baptism in the Holy Ghost. Whoa. Didn't see that. That's pretty neat, right? Oh, there's heal healing too? I can not just get healed, but stay healed? There's divine healing and divine health? Wow. What other gadgets are in here? You know, what other benefits came with this thing? Because it's all in there. All you got to do is unlock them. Amen? That's what the epistles are. The epistles, this is just the owner's manual telling you what all came with this new creation. And you can look at that, and that's the manual that tells you what's in you. Now, if you want to know how to live that, you got to go back to the cross and look at the, before the cross and look at Jesus. How he lived among unsaved people. How he lived, what he did, how he acted. And now, everything in the epistles tells you how to live the life Jesus lived before the cross. See, Jesus had to live the life and then be crucified. He couldn't be crucified and then live the life. 
<clears throat> Jesus had to be had to live the life as an example and then be crucified. And then he left us a testament of how he wants us to live his life. And that to look back, we look back at his life to see it. Now, we, on the other hand, have to be crucified so that we can live with him. Right? So he comes along, is crucified, lays down his life, then he leaves the earth, and then he leaves, sends his spirit back to us so that we can continue on his life here. That's the gospel. Isn't that simple? Now, the problem is most people don't know all the benefits that go with it. But one of the, the, the chief benefit here is this, and this is what, what we keep going back to. In Ezekiel, over and over again, I think it's like three or four different times specifically, he says, I will take out the stony heart, and I will put in the heart of flesh. I will give you a new heart, and he even says at one point, a new heart and a new spirit. I will make you a new person. They didn't get that. So you have to realize, when Jesus said, listen, you've heard it said, you know, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, somebody does this, you do this back to him. He said, you've heard it said. He said, but I say unto you. Well, all he was trying to tell them there is the law just basically took unsaved people and tried to make them good unsaved people. Right? Because it, it didn't bring righteousness. It didn't bring life. If it had, Jesus wouldn't have had to die. Because he said if the first covenant could bring, if there had been a, a law, if there had been a covenant that could have brought righteousness, then there would be no need for the new covenant. But since there's a new covenant, it meant that the first covenant couldn't do it, so we had to move from the old to the new. You, you know this. But the idea here is that most people are trying to live new covenant life under old covenant laws. And then they wonder why it's such a struggle. And many people have never received that new heart, that new spirit, that change that makes the Christian life literally easy to live. And, and it actually, for if you're trying to live what Hudson Taylor called the exchange life, the life of Christ under the law, that's why it's so hard. Because you keep trying to keep the rules instead of being the rules. You understand? It's not try, it's trust. Now, do I do the things? <clears throat> Am I a worse person after getting saved because there's no law? Of course not. Because this new heart, this new life made me a better person, but it didn't just fix me as a person, it gave me the life of Jesus. It totally separated me from the old life and made me brand new. Now, as you look at this, watch, because I want to take you very quickly. Yeah, I want, there was one scripture I want to take you to specifically. Yep. We know in Romans 12, it talks about renewing the mind. I mentioned that to you, but, but go with me to Second Peter. Why don't you look at Second Peter first. Get on over there myself. Now, as I mentioned earlier, for the first 300 years, things went pretty good with the church. Then it got accepted, got put in with every other God, and it went took a nosedive for about 1,200 years. And then about 1530, it started coming back up. Martin Luther had a revelation. The just shall live by faith. Not by rules and regulations, by faith. There's a contact. There's a living contact. And, the, and it started coming back up. But the Reformation really didn't do enough. It started heading up. And then over the years now, life has been coming back into the church. And just in the last, I would even say 10 years, especially 
really the preaching of grace has taken the forefront. And, and moving away from law. Why? Because we have to realize the church is growing up. Which Ephesians tells us it has to. The purpose of the ministry is to grow the body up into Christ Jesus. To where we look like him and talk like him. And honestly, we've got to admit. Up till now, whatever we've been doing hadn't been working. Because we haven't been producing people that look like Jesus. Every now and then we've had people kind of little, you know, just kind of sprout up that seem to exhibit more the life of Jesus. And instead of saying these people had actually grown spiritually mature, we say, oh, it's a gift. Why? Because it's easier to attribute it to a gift than it is, because once we attribute it to a gift, say we don't have to grow up. But if we attribute it to them being spiritually mature, oh, now that makes us look bad because we're not. So it's much easier just to give it to a gift. But the gifts are for you while you're not mature, so that when you do mature, you really don't need the gifts that much. You flow in the fullness of the Spirit because of the life of Jesus flowing through you. And now it's this constant flow instead of burst. Right? Because you really don't see burst in Jesus' life. He was constant. Amen? Amen. Now, look at this in Second Peter, beginning at verse 3. The only reason I'm starting at verse 3 is because I don't have time to read all of it, right? It's all good. So go go back in and study it out. But in verse 3, it's, it's, I'm not leaving it out because I don't like that part. I just don't have time for it, okay? Actually, you don't. i got all the time in the world. You don't have time for it. So I'm here a week from Tuesday, so I'm good. So, you know, he says in verse 3, according... Now, just for this, he'd talk about grace and peace being multiplied to you. And he said the grace and peace is going to be multiplied to you according as his divine power has given. Look at that. There's another past tense word. Has given. Given's past tense. Unto us all that some or all. All, right? All things that pertain or have to do with life and godliness. You hear that? What does that tell you? You have everything that pertains to life and godliness. Right? Now you don't have it here. You have it here. This part was recreated. This part you're renewing. It gets here from here as you renew this to the word of God. Because this word of God and your spirit are in perfect alignment. Why? Because the spirit and the word agree. Right? So your spirit already agrees with God. That's why if you died, you'd go be with him. Right? Because it's complete and perfect. Why? Because he did that part. You didn't recreate yourself. That's why his part is good. You are new. If you were born again, if you made Jesus your Lord, you are a new person, a new creature. Now, your job is to renew your mind so that your mind lines up so that this can express itself in the world. And when it does fully, and this is renewed, you look just like Jesus. Amen? You get that? Okay. Now watch. He says... According as his divine power has given unto us all things, all things, not some, you're not lacking anything, all things that pertain unto life and godliness. So anything that has to do with godliness or life, you got it. You just got to live it out. Right? Now, he says, now watch how you get it. Through, this is how you live it out and how it came to you. Through the knowledge of him that hath, past tense, called us to glory and virtue. 
Alright? So there is an aspect of knowledge that you have to gain so that this, what has been given to you, can express itself. Otherwise, he's just trapped. Right? And he'll have a little burst, but you won't see the life of Christ coming through you. Now, he goes on. Verse 4. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. Now, you hear how he talks about this? He's talking about scripture. Here he talks about that. That's why I told you last week, you got to fall in love with this book, right? Now, you, you say you love Jesus, but honestly, if you don't love this book, you don't know how to love him. This book shows you. Now, you can have good feelings and you can devote yourself to him, but the more you know of this book and the more you fall in love with this book and, and read this book and study the book and just spend time in the book, the more his life can flow through you because you're gaining the knowledge of the things that he has provided. These precious promises. Now watch. Whereby they are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. Why? That by these. By these what? These precious promises. Exceeding great and precious promises. Not just promises. Exceeding great and precious. That's why last night over and over again I kept emphasizing. You don't know how good this thing is. Maybe because you've never seen anybody walk in it. But you're not normal. You were never meant to be normal. You were meant to be partakers of God's divine nature. Different in this earth. Than anything that anybody any living now has ever seen. The closest anybody ever saw it was when Jesus walked the earth. Now, he says that by these... Precious promises, great, exceeding great and precious promises. You might be partakers of the divine nature. Now watch. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now just because you say lust, it doesn't mean sexual. Don't always think lust is sexual. It means an, an, an unsatisfiable desire. That's what it means. A craving. And he says that you have escaped the corruption in the world... Through lust, now watch, that corruption came into the world through this lust, and that's what the corruption is. But by these promises, you can escape that. Now, watch. He says, and besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. We talked about this the other day. And to virtue, knowledge. And to knowledge, temperance. And to temperance, patience. Now notice, he's telling you to add these things to you. He didn't say, get on your face and let God do it. That means that these are things that you work on. All right? In your own life, not in everybody else's life, right? Don't try to work on these in everybody else's life, right? The Holy Spirit can do his job, okay? He says, and to temperance, patience, and to patience, godliness. And you may need to go in and look all these words up so you know exactly what's being talked about. And to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you. That you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacks these things is blind. Now I thought it was interesting. Because I would already knew I was going to bring this scripture out. I thought it was interesting that the word came forth today about somebody dealing with blindness. Because usually God deals on two levels. Physical and spiritual. So he says, he is blind and cannot see afar off and has forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. You need to realize the essence of the new covenant is that your conscience has been purged of your sin. 
If you're always remembering your sin, then you are forgetting that you are purged of your sin and you think your sin is still remaining and therefore you don't walk in righteousness. You won't ever exhibit the life of Christ and you'll just be a normal person. Well, you'll be a normal religious person, always up and down, always reforming in your life and then failing to live up to it and reforming it again, making a, you know, turn over a new leaf. I'm going to do it this time. I'm going to do it this time. Not realizing that you're trying to do that with a heart that is not geared for that. You need a new heart. Amen? Amen. And he says, watch. <clears throat> Wherefore, the rather brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. Now, that's a good promise. If you do these things, you will never fall. Now, that right there would be enough to preach on. Okay, but I want to take you to one more passage very quickly here. One more passage to Colossians. We're going to go back there. Now, we said, and the reason I brought out Second Peter there, remember, just before I mentioned that, I started talking about how in the old days especially, and if you go back and study the Mayan and the Aztec culture, and almost every culture, every culture has some sort of blood sacrifice. Every one of them has some kind of blood covenant history. And if you go back, and especially the warrior cultures that would take captives and sacrifice them to their gods, there was two things they did. Usually, one of their, there was one reason why they sacrificed to their gods, and that was to appease their gods. So that they would have good crops, good weather, you know, the blessings of their God. But there was also another thing, and the North American Native Indians did this, and many other tribes did the same thing, that whenever they went into battle and fought, when they, they didn't just run through and killing people. When they killed an opponent, right then, pretty much every individual warrior stopped. He didn't go in and fight again unless it was just all around him and he, he had to to survive. But as he, they would run in and kill someone, immediately they would stop and cut the heart of their opponent out. And they would take that heart out and right then, and they, the North American Indians did the same thing also with the buffalo and with various animals, that as soon as they killed it, many times while the heart was still beating, they would cut the heart out and hold it in their hands. And as a rite of passage for a young man, usually the first bite was offered to the youngest brave, to the youngest warrior. Now we look at that and say, that is horrible. That, that is so barbaric. That's the Lord's Supper. You understand? They were doing from a fallen nature what is in man to have union with their God. As they would take this heart and eat it, they believed. They didn't just eat the heart. I know this sounds gross. <laughs> I've never heard this story in church before. Okay, well. <laughs> they didn't eat the heart because they were hungry. To eat the heart of their opponent or their whatever buffalo or animal or whatever it was they killed. They, that's why they killed. But they, they didn't do it with every animal. Okay, They didn't eat the heart of a skunk. Right? They didn't eat the heart of scavenger type animals. They ate the heart of predators, usually. 
or the, the animals that had strength, or a warrior that was very brave. Why? Because in eating the heart, they believed that it was connecting them both to the thing they killed, whether it was a human or the animal, and they believed that it was connecting them to their God. That eating that heart was an offering to the to their God. And they believed that by eating that heart that they actually partook of the qualities of the animal or the enemy they killed. So to eat the heart of a brave warrior that had killed many, they thought that was awesome because now I'm getting his bravery. That's literally what they thought. And whenever they would make offerings to their God of their, their, these sacrifices and these things, they really believed that by doing that, they were actually partaking of their God's nature. Now, see, again, we think that sounds crazy. That's ex Now, understand, the way they did it was wrong. They did it from a heart not renewed. But the Lord's Supper is that. That's why it's called communion. Right? It is the, the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper. It was communion with God. Why? Because in this we recognize what was taking place at that crucifixion and we recognize the crucifixion being the whole event. They recognize this is His blood poured out for the remission of sin. I drink it. That gives me connection to Him so that I can partake of His qualities. Now what qualities are they? Well, to know that, you got to know the precious promises. Every precious promise in this book is a quality. I, the way I've started talking about it is I just say, this, these, every verse, every scripture, you know, 2 Peter 1, 4, uh, you know, 2 Peter, or yeah, 2 Peter 2, 24, 1 Peter 2, 24, sorry. By his stripes, we were healed. These are aspects of the DNA of God. If Jesus is the Word made flesh, then every verse is a cell whenever he was incarnated in the flesh. Amen? Do you get that? And because of that, because he was the Word made flesh, every verse in here is a piece of him. So it's part of his DNA. You know, you can take DNA and look at it, and it has all the, the strand, the helix there, you can, it has a strand, and every part of it. And you can look and tell, oh, if this is missing, then guess what? It's going to create a mutant person. Right? To some degree. So it's no wonder the church doesn't look like Jesus. We've got precious promises that we've never become partakers of, and we have created a mutant body that does not look like Jesus. The scriptures tell us very clearly, is his arm short that he cannot heal? Guess what? If you're missing healing in the atonement, you've got a mutant body. One hand is short that he can't heal. You understand? By these precious promises, we become partakers of the divine nature of God. And because of that, as our mind is renewed to the word, we understand these promises and we live them out. And Jesus and his life looks, is seen again through the body of Christ. That's what Colossians is trying to tell us. Hopefully you found it. Okay. I'm going to go to Colossians chapter 3. This is almost actually basically kind of picking up where I left off last night. I didn't intend that. And I was open to whatever God wanted to bring forth. And he just really emphasized what I just brought to you and said, pick up there and go on. Now, I'm not reading all of it. There's just I want to get to one verse. Right? I just got to read a couple to get there. 
he says in verse 1, and listen, if you then be risen with Christ, are you risen with Christ? Have you, now listen, if you have been crucified with him, and that's what he's been talking about all through here. If you are crucified with him, you have been buried with him. If you've been buried with him, then you've been risen with him. In other words, whatever he went through, you went through. And the beauty of it is, if he went through it, you don't have to go through it. All right? He did it for you. And so now, he is crucified. You've been crucified. He's buried. You've been buried. He has risen. You've been risen. Right? Now it's time to walk on the other side of the cross. It's time to live in these precious promises of the epistles and the the DNA of God that tells you who you are in Christ Jesus. This is the new covenant. You understand? This is walking in that new creation. The new creation walks in the new covenant. It's a new way. The new covenant is, is epitomized by a new heart, a new spirit. That's who you are. That's why it's easy to live it, not hard to live it. If it's hard to live it, get born again. Literally. You say, well, I'm already born again. Maybe you're just religious. Maybe. I'm not saying... Right? That you are. I'm saying maybe you are. All I'm saying, hopefully I'll make you examine yourself, which is biblical. Right? Well, you just took away my salvation. Well, if I took it away that easy, you wasn't that saved. Okay? At least fight for it. Okay? And just realize that whenever, now, if you are risen with Christ, you got this new heart. Now, some of your trouble, you can have a new heart. And you have the will to, and we know in Philippians it tells us it is God who is in you both to will and to, to do his good pleasure. Many times you've got the will to, and that shows the heart of God, but yet you're messed up, in, you know, in the head. Right? I'm, I'm trying to be polite. Okay? <laughs> Meaning your mind is not renewed. So even though you have the will to, see the spirit is willing, but the flesh... The carnal mind is weak. In other words, it won't line up with it and let you do it. And you have all kinds of reasons why you shouldn't do it. You know, lay hands on the sick. No, it might not happen. might not work. might not be God's will. That was only for ordination. I mean, it'll go to the list. Until it finds one, you go, yeah, that's right. Oh, okay, we can stop there. You see? So you have to have your mind renewed so this new heart can express itself through you. And that new heart is the heart of Jesus. And that's why we do communion. is so that we can recognize and remember and we partake of the nature of our God through these precious promises and we remember by his stripes I'm healed. That's a precious promise. And as we have a ritual, right, drinking juice and eating crackers does not heal you or save you or set you free or get you saved. Amen? Amen. Remembering what they were, discerning the body of Christ, discerning the blood of Jesus does those things. Right? It's not in a ritual. The Old Testament was rituals. Shadows of things to come. Jesus is the reality. Now, let's move on from there. Watch what he says. If you then be risen with Christ. Okay, I, I accept I'm risen with Christ. Seek those things which are above. Okay, I'll seek those. Okay. Where Christ sits on the right hand of God. Now, immediately when it says seek those things which are above, what's the first verse that comes to mind? Matthew 6.33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. And if you go back and read just before that, Jesus was telling him, listen, don't take worried thoughts and, and don't be anxious about what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear. If everything's going to, don't worry about it. He says the pagan, actually says Gentiles, which meant pagans, literally people outside the covenant of God. He said that's how the Gentiles think. That's how pagans think. Pagans worry about what they're going to eat. 
Pagans worry about whether they're going to have clothing. They worry about if they're going to have a roof over their, house, over their head. And he says, don't be like that. Why? Because you're not like them. You have a God. See, they're outside of the commonwealth of God. They're outside of the protection and the, the blessings of God. But you, don't be like them. You have a God who takes care of you. He knows what you need. So don't be worrying about those things. Focus on the things that are above. This is just a restatement of what he was trying to say there. Paul was speaking by the Spirit and saying the same thing Jesus told them. Think on the things that are above. Don't think on things below. Don't get wrapped up. Don't get entangled in the affairs of life. Think on the things that are above. I'm not saying, you know, don't cook supper. Well, I don't want to take the order I'm going to eat, so I'm not going to cook anything. I'm not saying that. It's not talking about not taking thought in the sense of not thinking about it. It says, don't worry. Don't worry about these things. Why? You have a good heavenly father. And matter of fact, if you're praying the way Jesus said, he said, give us this day our daily bread. Right? Well, if you pray that and believe that he hears you and believe you have what you ask, then you're not going to worry about what you're going to eat because he's going to give you your daily bread. Now, we also know daily bread had to do with healing. Because healing is the children's bread, according to Jesus. And, that's, and that bread should be daily. The life of Jesus, the healing of Jesus should be daily with you. Well, if you're living in daily bread, daily healing, when is there time to be sick? Right? It should just be a constant flow. You know? hard, hard for something to get stagnant when the faucet's on. Right? Because it always keeps it going. And if you'll notice it talks about the Holy Spirit, it says that the Holy Spirit will be in you. A well of water springing up. Not sitting dormant, not sitting stagnant. The Holy Spirit's moving. Well, I'm waiting for the moving of the Holy Spirit. Well, get him in you and you'll start moving because he's moving. He's not sitting around waiting. You know, if he's waiting, he's waiting on you. You're not waiting on him. Right? Now watch, real quick here. <laughs> See, I say that, it makes you not feel your ears long. <laughs> so he says... Seek those things which are above, where Christ sits on the right hand of God. Verse 2, set your affections on things above. Now, do you realize you can think on things above and not have your affections there? Right? That's called religion. That's what religion Religion thinks about heaven. That's all religion ever thinks about is heaven. Isn't that right? That's all they ever talk about. Well, heaven and law. Right? If you want to get to heaven, you've got to do everything right, right here. Right? But they don't have their affection set on the things above. He says, Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For you are dead. Now, that doesn't sound good, but the next part's really good. And your life is hid with Christ in God. Now, that's an amazing statement. Because if your life is hid with Christ in God, how can you get sick, be sick, stay sick? How can you be poor, stay poor, get poor? You know what I'm saying? How can, if your life is in God and He takes care of you, your needs are met. He provides for you. He takes care of you. You don't have to worry. You don't have to fret over these things. And, what are we going to do? You know, I don't know if I'm going to pay. Don't worry. He's working on it. Yeah. You, you don't have to pay it right now. When you do, it'll be there. If you relax. If you give it to Him. If you trust Him for it. You know, it's funny because, it was just like we were talking before, and, and the testimony from, from Brother Mike was that, you know, to the girl with the, with the arm, and he said it was great faith that I told her to go, to, well, kind of, but not as great faith as the first time it happened. Second time it's never as great a faith as the first time. 
First time is always the greatest faith because you got nothing to base it on. Right? Second time, you got something you can go back to. See, I learned. First time, I prayed for a little boy that had a leg amputated by doctors because he had uh, leukemia, I think it was. Yeah, I think it was leukemia. Yeah. And, and he came to me. It was a house meeting. And he came in. His leg had been removed by about a month and a half, something like that. And they even took out the, the what they call the growth plates, the, the cells in the blood and in the body that cause skin to grow and cause things to grow. It's in you to grow automatically. It's in you to replace whatever gets removed. That's God made us that way, so we should constantly replenish. But most of the time it doesn't because of you know sin and the, how the earth and the war and humans have degenerated. But they took this, they took his leg because of the leukemia, and he came to me and he said, and matter of fact, they'd already told him they were fixing to have to take the other one. And this little boy, he was just a young boy. He was about, uh, I think he was 11. I think it was, I think it was 11. And we were in a house meeting. He walked over and had, had a cane and walked, or a uh, crutch under his arm, walked over and said, Brother Curry, do you think God would give me my leg back? And I looked at him. I got down the knees and I said, I don't think he will. I know he will. And he said, would you pray for me that God will give my leg back? And I said, I would be privileged to pray for you that God will give your leg back. And so I just put my hand. Actually, he had a, it was removed at the knee. And I put my hand right on the edge of where his knee should be and just prayed very simply. Just, Father, you heard his request. And I thank you that I grant it to him in Jesus' name. I said, leg, grow. And then I told him, I said, now, and, you know, we, it didn't pop out. I said, now, I said, also, right now, because I took the opportunity, I said, leukemia, you will leave his body. They will not take your other leg. You will be healthy and strong in Jesus' name. It exactly worked out that way. He was healthy and strong, no leukemia, left his body, and they didn't take his other leg. Well, within a matter, actually, it was a couple of months, his leg grew back 18 inches. Right? I don't know what that is in centimeters, but it's long. Okay? <clears throat> and... He and I told him I said, before I left. I told him I said, "Now, whenever, whenever you can put a shoe on that leg, you know, on the foot that's going to grow in that, I said, you walk in any meeting I'm in, and I'll give you the microphone, right? Because I want you to give that testimony." And we kept hearing testimony: the leg is growing, it's growing, it's growing, it's growing. Amen. Now this was actually about, I guess, about two years ago, or actually a bit more than that, probably. But. So we already had experience with things going back. We have experience with organs being recreated, things that doctors have taken out. God has put back in. There was one girl, that uh, a wife of a young man that traveled with me. He was from the Church of Christ. He was a valedictorian, I think it was, of their seminary and was looked upon as one of the rising stars in the Church of Christ. You know, which, if they have stars, I don't know anything about them. But... Okay. <laughs> But, I mean, he was really coming up, and everybody thought he was going to be one of the next major preachers for them. He was good at what he did, and he was relative, well, pretty young man, actually. Married. They couldn't have children. Uh, there was a problem with her that they could not have, have children. And we, he came to our church. He heard about uh, healing. He started searching. His wife was diagnosed with thyroid cancer. And they went in, removed her thyroid, removed the parathyroid, and from that day on, she had to take iodine pills and eat a certain diet and all this stuff. And so they, I was doing a one-day seminar on, on healing. And they 
came into the church and sat there and he had a bunch of other Church of Christ people with him. Church of Christ doesn't believe in healing. And he, they didn't believe it. They sat there and they were arguing, you know, with him, kind of saying, you know, this isn't what we believe. And he said, listen, listen. And, and when we got done, he came to me and he told the people with him standing there, he said, in a matter of, I think he said, uh, we were there about four hours. He said, in four hours, you have completely destroyed everything I was taught in seminary for four years. He said, there is nothing I can say against anything you said. All the scriptures are there. It's there. He said, all I want to know is how do we do this? Now, a lot of the other Church of Christ people that were there weren't as honest. They left. Nope, this isn't what our church teaches, so we don't want nothing to do with it. And they left. So we went out to, to eat after that and talked. I didn't know anything about his wife. He didn't tell me about cancer. He didn't tell me anything. We went to eat at a restaurant. We're sitting down. They, we start ordering. They bring our food. When they bring our food, she pulls out this little pouch, pulls out her sandwich, puts it all together. And I thought that was strange. But, <laughs> you know, that's not what usually happens. But, you know, I understand because I don't always eat where we go so I can see taking food with you okay but she sat there and she made us, and I, but I didn't say anything I figured it's her prerogative you know I don't try to pry into people's lives and say things so but I did notice it and we started to leave we get out in the parking lot he comes to me and he says uh, Brother Curry tomorrow when we come to church because they were going to come it was Saturday evening he said tomorrow when we come to church would you pray for my wife and she's standing right there I said well, yeah, why, what, what's going on? Well, she has cancer. They did surgery, removed her thyroids, removed the parathyroids, has to take medicine. You saw how she has to eat. I'm like, I, I was wondering about that. I didn't know. And I, he said, so tomorrow would you pray for her? And I said, what, well, does she just really want to keep it another day? <laughs> and he, he looked at me kind of funny and he said, well, no. I said, well, then why don't we just pray now? And he's looking like in the parking lot between two cars. You know, we don't have an organ. We don't have anything, you know. I mean, that's what he's thinking, you know. This isn't very religious. You were just eating a meal and we were talking and, you know, you weren't praying and fasting. And I know you weren't fasting. I saw you eat, you know. So, you can, and I said, we can do this now. I said, I'm just as anointed now as I will be tomorrow. Amen. Right? And he said, well, yeah, okay. So, I just took her by the hand and I just, just simply, I said, cancer, you will leave her now. In the name of Jesus, I command you to leave her now. And then when we stopped, when I stopped saying that, we they thought we were through. And I said, so right now, in the name of Jesus, thyroid, you grow back. Father, we thank you for replacing her thyroid, the parathyroid. We thank you for it now in Jesus' name. And I, I actually, what I said, it was fix, change, restore, whatever needs to be done, return it to normal. We got done. He said, that, that first part I understood, the last part, what? To restore it, that, that, that's impossible. You know, because he, he, he thought I meant them to go back in and put them back. You know, like surgery. And I said, I said, no, it's, it's, he will, he will put them back. He put them there first time. He can put them there again. Right? God can undo what man has done. Okay? Hmm, he really thought about that. Well, that was Saturday. They came to church Sunday. Monday, she went back to work. Well, she's a nurse. In the medical profession, she was very good at what she did. She works in a children's hospital. And she went back and went to some doctor friends of hers and said, you know, I got, well, actually, she didn't tell me at first. She said, I want you to run some tests on me. And what got her attention first off was all day Monday, she forgot to take her medicine because she never felt she needed it. You know, it didn't, the feeling didn't remind her. So she called her husband and said, uh, I hadn't taken my medicine. He said, well, have you been checked? She said, no. He said, well, go get checked. 
And so she went and got and said, run some tests. They ran x-rays. They ran the tests and everything. Her thyroids were like the size of peas. They were growing back. Now, and it continued back until now she has her thyroids and her parathyroids. It all grew back. Amen? That's God. I mean, that's God. Now, so, now after that, I mean, this young man, well, he traveled with me and he was on fire. And I mean, he really went and went after this thing. And he was with me everywhere he went. He saw miracles. He saw things going on. And it's kind of funny because we moved and they had moved and, and actually he quit his job at one point and was traveling with me. And we have people out at, um, at Bethel in, in Reading, uh, Bill Johnson. We have people that have gone through our training. Well, we had people that were working in the healing rooms there. And they were getting such good results that they went to them and said, how are you doing this? And they said, well, this, we took Curry Blake's training. And immediately after that, the leaders of their healing room said, nope, you're out of here. No more. Why? Just because it was, my name was attached to it. Right? Like you were talking about getting ridiculed, getting put down. So, you know, if it doesn't come in the package you want, sometimes you kick it out. Even though it's getting better results than you were getting. You know, to me, just be honest. Right? Who cares who it comes through? As long as it's truth. Check it out with the Word of God. If it's truth, use it. Right? So they ran him off. So now this young man's going down to San Jose and becoming a, a more or less a pastor down there and doing some, some work down there. Funny thing was, the young man that traveled with me, has just moved to Bethel. So they kicked one guy out and another guy moved in there that has this message and he won't bow, he won't bend and neither did the other guy. But it's like, okay, we'll just keep sending people through there until they get it. You know? And it's so funny to watch how God works because they didn't know this other guy had traveled with me. And now they have asked him to travel with their leadership team. So now it's going, it's, I feel kind of like Paul. We have, we have the very, we have people in Caesar's house. Amen. They're not going to get away from it. Sooner or later, what you've been hearing in this message, it's the Bible. It is going to, going to come to prominence. It's going to be the message, not just of healing. I don't heal the sick based on a doctrine. I heal the sick because I am connected to the vine. The life flows through the branch. Amen? It's not about a doctrine. It is being connected. It's having a new heart. It's having this new covenant. It's being risen with Christ. It's setting your affections on things above. It is being who you're supposed to be. It's not acting a certain way or preaching a certain doctrine. Amen? Now, if you've also noticed in the healing services, we have purposely gone toward. Why? Because it's not enough. Now, we lay hands on people. But first, we like to give Jesus just the opportunity to minister to people where they are. And that way, you can connect with him personally instead of having to go through a man. Amen? Because we're trying to grow the body up. That's what we want. We want you to, be, to have a direct connection and to know. That it wasn't a gift, it wasn't an anointing, it wasn't anything about any person. It's about you being connected with Jesus. And his life, you having that life in abundance. That, you know, you take a dirty glass and you pour water in it. First it's all muddy or dirty and you can tell it. But if you just let the water run, pretty soon the glass has got clean water and even the overflow is clean. 
Well, that overflow is life abundant. So maybe first you need to get the life of God in you to, to, to clean you out, so to speak. You know, spiritually, morally, emotionally, physically. Maybe that, maybe that's where you need to be. But if you just stay in the faucet, then eventually that life just starts to overflow and it's clean and it's good and it's amazing. You know, you drink dirty water, you don't feel that good afterwards. You know, maybe that's what's in you. But if you just keep drinking clean water, after a while it just flushes all that out and you start feeling a lot better. You just need to know that you, if you are born again, now if you're not born again, I'm not even, I, I can't even tell you that. But if you are born again, the life of Jesus is flowing through you. Whether you feel it, whether you don't at this point, his life is flowing through you. Maybe it's been just enough to give you maintenance where you just survive. But he wants you to have life in abundance. Right? He wants that life to be so much in you that you can give it away to other people. It's not enough that we have it. We've got to give it away. Amen? Because there's a world out there looking for it. They need help. They're crying out for help. You're their help. You are the light of the world. Right? And you don't hide a light under a bushel. You set it on top of the hill where men can see your good works, your good works, and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Amen? Amen. Jesus said, I didn't do anything in a corner. I didn't do anything out of sight. I didn't do anything hidden and private. He said, everything I did, I did openly. We need to start doing some things openly so that Jesus can be glorified, not just under a bushel basket. Amen? Let's all stand up. I'm going to pray. And if then we'll close the service, turn it back over to the leadership, and then we can they can dismiss you, and then we will pray for you individually if you like. I have no problem with that. But if I don't do it like you think I should, please don't get upset. Right? I'm I'm growing. And I'm trying to grow to be more like Jesus and less like a healing evangelist. Amen? And so I'm just trying to let the life of God flow out of me and heal as we go and we touch people. And it doesn't have to be a set prayer, set thing. It doesn't have to be a certain way. It's just life. Right? You turn on a light bulb, light goes out. It's not a certain way. This isn't a spotlight. You know, it's not like a torch that you can point it and direct it. You can, but it's much better just to have total light. I mean, how many of you want to live by torchlight? Not many. You want to flip a switch and have light throughout the whole house. Amen? We can put on the torch light for healing and direct it individually, but let's just turn on the light, live in the light, walk in the light as He is in the light, and we won't walk in darkness. Amen? Amen. So, let's pray. Father, we just thank you. Father, we praise you. We give you all glory and honor. It is your light, your life, your love, Lord, that allows us to live this life in abundance, to have healing as part of our nature, to have prosperity as part of our nature, to have all of these different aspects as part of it, but as the whole, it's just you. Father, we thank you that we can look at you like looking at a diamond through different facets, but 
we can step back and look at the whole diamond and say, this is our God. He is a healer. He is a, a blesser. He is our peace. He is our righteousness. He is all of these things. And he is anything we need. Father, we thank you we have a God like that. We thank you, Lord, that we are partakers of your divine nature by these promises that we assimilate in our, in our spirit and our soul. We thank you, Lord, we are, we are having our mind renewed to your word, to where we think like you and talk like you and act like you. Father, we just give you praise and glory. We thank you for your son. The life he lived, the death, burial, and resurrection, and the life he now lives through us. Father, we thank you that he is always interceding for us. That he has prayed for us that our faith would not fail. And we thank you, Father, that our faith in you is strong and constant. Established, built up in the faith. Not wavering, not tossed to and fro like children, but growing up into spiritual maturity. Sons of God, manifesting on this earth. That allows your glory to be seen in everyday life. Father, I thank you for these people. I thank you, Lord, for the baptism of the mighty Holy Ghost. That allows people to walk in fullness of power and fullness of the Spirit and in blessing. And with that baptism comes power, ability to do the works of God. Right now in the name of Jesus. Father, I thank you that you are working on hearts to save. Right now to bring to redemption to bring into salvation, that you're working on people right now to bring the fullness of the baptism of the Spirit into their life. I thank you, Father, for filling them with your life that brings salvation as they make you their Lord. I thank you, Father, for bringing the Holy Spirit power into their life that gives them ability to be a witness. And I thank you, Lord, for healing their bodies healing their minds, healing their marriages, healing their lives, physical, spiritual, emotional, all of it. Father, I thank you for being a God to us, a God like no other. And I thank you for it now. So in Jesus' name, because of that, I say to you now, in Jesus' name, be free. Be healed now. In the name of Jesus, be free free of addictions, free of bondages, free of habits, free of sins that constantly come back to haunt you. Free. I set you free in Jesus' name. Free of sickness and disease. Free of, right now, free of cancer, free of leukemia, free of tuberculosis, free of asthma. In the name of Jesus, right now, I speak to every circulatory system in this building and say, you be healed, you work right, the blood pressure returned to normal. In Jesus' name, right now, in the name of Jesus, fear, go. Right now, in the name of Jesus, no more fear. Don't, there's, there's, I want to say somebody, but it seems like it might be even more than one. There's somebody, people here, who has been afraid they're going to have a stroke. In Jesus' name, we banish that fear. In Jesus' name, we command that system to return to normal. We command that blood pressure to return to normal. You will operate correctly in Jesus' name. Amen. Right now, we command it to be so. In Jesus' name. We Amen. command chemical imbalances to become balanced. Right now, in Jesus' name. Bipolar, I break your power. 
In Jesus' name, we command this to go now. We command the chemicals in the brain to readjust, to normalize, and we command it to be so. You'll be free. You watch in Jesus' name. Right now, freedom in Jesus' name. Eyes be opened. Ears open in Jesus' name. Hear perfectly. See perfectly. Do your job. Bodies, do your job. You are connected to children of God. So in Jesus' name, we say, be free, be healed. Now, in Jesus' name. Now, right now where you are, if there was something you couldn't do, begin to do it. Begin to move. If there was a limb you couldn't move, begin to move. If you couldn't breathe, maybe you've had problems in the lungs. Just breathe. Maybe there's been asthma. Maybe there's been even, uh, yeah, chronic bronchitis in Jesus' name. Right now, just breathe. And watch, your lungs are healed. Lungs are healed right now in Jesus' name. Right now. In Jesus' name. Amen. That, that, if, matter of fact, if you'll check, that lump you've had that you've been worried about, it's gone. Gone in Jesus' name. Right now. It's gone. You, you, you brush it every, you brush against it every time you move your arm, and I'm telling you, move your arm. Check it out. You watch. Gone in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Father, we just thank you for your work in the lives of the people. We thank you for your spirit, for your life. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 I did notice, I meant to tell you that Psalm 138 verse 2 is in the manual, but it's on page 5. It's a little bit further back in there. So it is recorded there, so you do have it. Um, <clears throat> now, the main thing to remember here in, in talking about God's Word is two things. If you look at page 4 in the manual, it says at the top, God's Word never stops working. So we're still going to hammer on this a little bit more about us on the Word of God. Because like I said, you're going to get people that are going to question you. They're going to try to get you to back off of what you've done. They're going to get you to try to agree with them that what you did isn't working. Uh, you need to realize the prayer of agreement works both ways. Okay? In other words, you can agree with somebody according to the Word of God and it will come to pass. Well, the devil's always looking for agreement also. Don't agree with him. Okay? God is looking for someone that will agree that his word is true. The devil is looking for someone who will agree that his word is not true. You have to decide who you're going to agree with. Right? There may be times when the only person you agree with is God. Alright? You may be the only real believer there. Everybody else may be unbelieving. And so, there's going to come a time... And that's, to be very honest, that's one of the reasons why I thank God for my time in the Word of Faith movement. Because that was one thing they drilled into me. The value of your words, the power of your words, confession, saying what the Word says, don't get off the Word. It's something that the church has lost. We need to get back to the idea that God's Word is settled. What He says is the way it is. Now, <clears throat> technically, you have to remember, the devil is only, or I should say he is limited uh, even though he is a spirit being, he is limited mainly to carnal, physical, flesh, 
ruled actions and tools. The Bible says that our weapons are not carnal, but they are spiritual actually, and they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Those strongholds is talking about are teachings and doctrines and beliefs that have been built up really in your mind. And so it's not talking about strongholds in the heavens that you pull down. That is not what it's talking about. Go ahead and read the context. It's talking about what you believe. Now, the devil works in the physical realm. God works in the spiritual realm. Now, the difference is, the devil works from the outside in. God works from the inside out. Okay? Now, what that means is that if you agree with what God has said, God's word is true and it is law. It's, it is reality. Right? And it is the way things are in the spirit realm. The devil works in the physical realm. In other words, if you think doctors can diagnose disease because it is in the physical realm. Right? Many times, as a matter of fact, they'll tell you, you obviously have a problem, but we can't diagnose it, we can't find it. Usually, and when I say usually, I really mean always, right? That means that it has, that, that sickness has a spiritual source that doctors can't pinpoint, right? Many times it's a spirit of infirmity, things like that that go on. When somebody comes to me, and whenever I'm listening to someone, remember this is a healing training, so I'm trying to give you some details here, even though we're in the beginning stages here. When someone comes to me and says, Brother Curry, I've got this problem, and I've been to doctors, and they can't diagnose it. Honestly, when, I'm, when, I, when you're talking to me, I'm listening to even the words you use. And I'm listening for certain things that help me, just like if a doctor, you went to a doctor, he's going to ask you questions, and based on your answers, he's going to form a diagnosis. In many ways, whenever I'm listening to a person, and they're saying, well, I've been to doctors, and you know, I'm listening to them, and they say, well, what's, what's the problem? Well, here's the symptoms, okay? And, you know, have you been diagnosed? Says the doctor, yeah, I've been to doctors and they can't figure out why or what the source is. When they say that, right then that tells me what the source is. Doctors can only diagnose what they can see, touch, feel, you know, what they can see, basically. We operate in the spirit. So when a person says that, we know that the source of that thing is spiritual, usually a spirit of infirmity. And so based on what I know... And experience now, I know that usually that comes through some type of traumatic experience. They've gone through something, they've had something happen, that, that is the entrance. Now, I don't take them back to that and try to work them through that problem. Right? I know that their problem is a devil. Okay? That's the problem. And so I automatically go after that and I tell it to go. And that sets them free. Now, very simply, the way to minister healing is that there's a general... Um, I don't. Say, there's not a formula per se, but there is a general pattern of the way things usually work. And what I would tell you is this, and this will hold true pretty much for all of it, is that it's pretty simple. In that, basically, you just tell it what to do. What do you want it to do? In other words, you talk to the sickness. You tell it what you want it to do. You want it to go. You want it to die. You want it to leave the body. You talk. If it's a spirit involved in it, you talk to the spirit. You tell the spirit to go. So basically, you just tell it what to do, right? Now, you might want to write this down because first and foremost, even though we're going to be dealing with the power of God and healing, this is not all about healing. Because it's not, as we were talking yesterday, one of the examples I, re, uh, I used recently. Uh, how many of you all seen the old movie, The Karate Kid? Remember, remember Karate Kid? 
Remember, they had two different schools. Remember, the original one had two different schools, or had a school. It had the Cobra Kai. I remember that was the, the guy that was the hardcore ex-military guy that was teaching them no mercy and all that kind of stuff. Remember? Kind of a jerk. Remember? And then you had Miyagi, who only had one student, and that was Daniel, right? And you watch how the other guys were taught. They went into the, to the martial arts school. They went there to learn to fight, and they were being taught technique. Daniel wanted to learn, and he went, and Miyagi taught him what? Wax on, wax off. Remember that? Had nothing to do with karate, as far as Daniel was concerned, right? And then when he taught him, you know, brush up, brush down, brush up, brush down. Remember that? And he taught him all these different things, and Daniel got really upset and was going to leave, and he, he didn't think he was learning anything. And he showed, Miyagi showed him that he was actually learning something other than what he was being taught. Right? He was learning something and didn't know he was learning it. Now, the essence here is this. What we're going to be teaching, when we get done, you will be more effective at healing. Even though a lot of what we're going to be talking about doesn't necessarily have to do with healing. You'll find out that Jesus never taught healing. He never taught healing. See, you're going to hear me say several terms, and one of them is this. What I call the backwards church. The backwards church means that we do things, the church as a whole does things exactly the opposite of what the Bible says. And usually I tell people, if you just take what you've learned in church and do the exact opposite, then you'll actually be closer to what the Bible says about healing. Right? That's just a general rule. Okay? Now, <clears throat> to give you an example, Jesus used healing to prove his words. Right? If you don't believe what I'm saying, believe me for the work's sake. In other words, look at what I'm doing, and that verifies what I'm saying. So Jesus used healing to verify his words, right? Or to prove his words. The church uses his words to prove healing. See how that's backwards? We shouldn't use, necessarily use his words to prove healing. We should use healing to prove his word. Right? Because that's what Jesus did. Now... So a lot of what we're going to be doing and what you're going to find out, when we get done, you're going to find out that you're more effective at healing. But the reason you're going to be more effective is that healing is a byproduct of being a Christian. Healing is a byproduct of who you are in Christ. You understand? Jesus didn't heal because he was a healer. Jesus healed because he was connected to God. Alright? It was his nature to heal. It wasn't just a power given just to heal, but it was who he was. You're going to see that as we go on, as a matter of fact. And he specifically says that. And so, as you learn more about who you are in Christ, then healing will become a natural outflow of that. So, and we're going to be talking about healing, we'll be talking about different things to clear up things, but I want you to realize, you're going to heal the sick because of who you are. Not because of a gift or some knowledge. If you're just going to heal the sick because you have a, a, a knowledge, then we have digressed from Christianity to Gnosticism. Right? And that's not who we are. Everything we do exalts God and goes back to who God is. Amen? And now, so that's, that's really the basis of what we're going to be doing. So a lot of this has to do with the reason you're not seeing healing is because you may not truly understand who you are in Christ. Really, every problem that a Christian faces in this life 
goes back to one of two things. You either don't know what happened at the cross or you're not walking in the benefits of what happened at the cross. Really, that's the only two things. Because that's where, now listen carefully, as a Christian, that's where your lineage starts. Right? When you went to the foot of the cross, as we would say in church terms, when you went to Christ and accepted Him, that's where your lineage starts. That's when you stop being normal. Okay? At that point, you became a son of God. And even you women, your sons, even though he talks about sons and daughters, your sons because you're in him. Right? That's why he says there's neither male nor female. Right? So don't worry about that. Just know that you're in him. And because of that, because of what happened, in, then that means that everything that you were before your introduction to the cross, before you received Christ, has nothing to do with you anymore. You understand? You're free from that. That means your grandpa, anybody else ahead of you, has nothing to do with your lineage. Do you understand? Your lineage goes back to Christ. Now, everything we're going to be talking about has to do with who you identify with. If you still identify with grandpa, then you're not identifying with Christ. And you're denying the work he did in you, and you're technically denying your new birth. Okay? So you have to identify with somebody. I suggest you identify with Christ. Right? The blessings are there. It's good. Okay? So, if you identify with your relatives, then guess what? You're not going to walk in the benefits of being connected to Christ. But once you realize you are connected to Him, your, identif- your identification in Christ means everything. That means your lineage does not go back any further. It means your lineage goes back one generation to Jesus. Right? And in Jesus, there is no curse because He became a curse for us. So, in Christ, there is only blessings. Matter of fact, and listen carefully, remember, remember this. Old, and I said this earlier, Old Testament, they were looking toward the cross. They were looking forward to something being done. In the, old, in the New Testament, we are looking back to the cross, to the fact that that cross proves it was done. That's why Jesus said, it is finished. Right? So it's not, look, nobody's going to get healed. You understand? Nobody's going to get healed. As far as God is concerned, every healing was accomplished at that whipping post. Now you say, then how come there's people that are still sick? Because there is an enemy that has not relinquished or he's relying on the fact that they don't know they were healed. And so he hangs on in there until one of us comes along and says, no, you got to go. Right? Or we teach them who they are in Christ. And unfortunately, this isn't just true with sinners, this is true with Christians. Most Christians don't know that they were healed. They're still trying to get God to do it. God is going to heal me is the, probably the biggest statement of unbelief a Christian will ever make. Right? Because it's done. See, as long as you're saying God's going to, then you are admitting that it's not done, and that means you do not believe Isaiah 53. It means you do not believe 1 Peter 2.24. It means you don't believe really anything that Jesus did on the cross. Right? You get saved because you believe what Jesus did 2,000 years ago applies to you today. You get healed the same way. Amen? So, I'm telling you, when you get down to it, the tenses mean everything. Right? It is past tense. God's work. Now, again, I'll I'll prove this to you. In uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, it says very clearly that He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing 
in heavenly places. Now, if you look at that verse itself in the King James and even the other versions, it has the same tense. But in the King James, it says specifically, half. Half. Okay? That means past tense. So, he's not, see, when people come down and say, well, I'm just looking for a blessing. You're looking in the wrong place. Right? You've already been blessed. It's not a matter of you getting blessed. It's a matter of you, matter of fact, let me just say it this way. The biggest word in Christianity today is probably revival. Alright? It's amazing because you cannot find that word in the New Testament. Not there. Right? And yet that's the number one thing everybody talks about. In the New Testament, we don't have revival. Not the way it's talked about. Right? Matter of fact, you're never told to be revived. You are told very clearly. New Testament revival is very simple. It is not revival. It is what Paul said. And he said, awake unto righteousness. That is New Testament revival. Whenever you, now understand, you're already alive, so you don't need to be revived. So you can't revive something that's already alive. You can only revive something that was alive and then died. Right? But you are in Christ, so you're not dead. And see, the modern Christians have a total... The biggest problem in Christianity today is just wrong terminology. They have wrong definitions. Right? They talk about being alive. They talk about being revived. They're not being revived. All they're doing is... The problem is they have a zeal and they don't know what to do with it. Right? You don't need to be revived. You just need to take your zeal and go do something with it. You say, well, I don't have a zeal. Then you need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Real simple. Because when he baptizes you in the Holy Ghost, he gives you power and fire. And that fire is zeal. Alright? So, you don't, nobody needs revival. They don't need to come down front begging for revival. They just need to awake to righteousness, find out who they are in Christ, and live that way. Right? Real simple. So, those, those are some of the keys. Now, our problem is, like I said, we have wrong definitions, and we don't go by that. But, once you realize who you are in Christ, and you awake to righteousness and you awake to the fact that you have right standing with God, and that the devil can't get in between that, then automatically you start, number one, you'll start living right. It's weird how that happens. But you'll start living right, and you'll start believing right, and then you'll start acting right in day-to-day life. Just because, you know, if you knew that God has nothing against you, that He's living in you, walking in you, talking to you and in you and through you, and that His Spirit lives in you, then you don't need to ask for anything. You just need to go do what you have. And you just release it. That's all there is to it. Now, many people don't know how to release, and that's one of the things we'll teach you in this seminar, is actually how to release the power of God. It's really, really simple. right? And, as a matter of fact, it is so simple that most people miss it. You know, because we're looking for some flash, some gimmick. And, you know, it's funny because even, and, and I was a, strong student of Charles Finney, especially regarding revival. And he made a statement. He said that revival has to be short periods of time. Because he said humans, the nervous system of a human, could not live up to revival on a daily basis. You would have a nervous breakdown. Now, if something that you think you're doing, some religious experience is going to give you a nervous breakdown, that's not from God. You understand? Now, I'm not saying there's not times you can get excited. I'm not saying there's not times there are extended meetings and good things going on. I'm just saying if there's no way that you could live in the state that most people think they're trying to get to and stay there. You can't do it. You're not made to it. Right? 
See, the problem is we're trying to be something that we're not rather than actually being who we are. See, a person, for example, a person with authority never has to yell, really. Right? A person with authority speaks and expects to be obeyed. Simple as that. You don't have to scream and holler. If you've got to scream and holler, you have pretty much abdicated your authority. Right? I'm not talking about there's not times to get stirred up. There are, and ways to stir up. But I'm saying, if you have to yell at a person to get them to do what you're trying to get them to do, then they don't, they're not recognizing your authority over them. Right? You understand that? Same way with demons. Volume doesn't make demons or sickness go. Getting stirred up makes them go. Okay? The Bible says to stir See, there's two. And I'm just giving you some little nuggets here that we will get into a little bit later on. The Bible talks about two things particularly. In Jude, it talks about being built up in your inner man, praying in the Holy Ghost. Right? That is day-to-day maintenance and can stay at a level where you can maintain and handle anything that comes your way. Right? But then there's times when Paul said, stir up the gift that is in you. Right? So there's building yourself up, which is day-to-day maintenance, but then there's times when you stir up the gift that is in you, and that is an event. Right? Now, you, you're building up. See, if you have an event, there's peaks. Your built-up should be a constant peak. Right? And your, your normal way of living should be at that peak. That should be normal. Right? And if you do that, then you don't generally have to stir up because you're walking built up. You understand? Does that make sense to you? I'm, I'm, I'm trying to say things in a way that you can start to see it quicker and earlier on. Right? Now, one of the things to remember here, uh, if you look at page 4, it says God's Word never stops working. That's in Isaiah 55:11. what we're talking about. Most of you know this verse. It says, So shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth. It shall not return to me void. But it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall, pro- it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. Now, that's just a statement of fact. All right? God's word does not return to him void. It does what he sent it to do. All right? Now, the Bible, we know that Jesus was the word made flesh. He was called the word, right? And so, if God sends his word, then it's going to accomplish what it was sent to do. Right? Did Jesus totally accomplish the will of God and exemplify God through his life? Yes. Now, it says here, so shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth. So it's going to come forth, and then it says he sent his word and healed them. Isn't that right? He sent his word and healed them. Now, you're going to find out that the healing that Jesus accomplished, there was a set time when it was accomplished, but the effects of it is still going on today. So, the word works. Now, the key here is this. And if you read the whole thing, I'm not going to read it to you. Hopefully that's, you know, you take it and read the manual. That's the whole idea. But the point I'm trying to get across is this. God does not have to keep repeating a thing. God says it once, it becomes law. Right? He says it once, and it's enacted. He says it once, and it accomplishes what he sends it to do. So God, see what most people are trying to do? Most people are trying to get God to say today, you're healed. He doesn't have to say that. He said once they were healed, right? Now you'll notice this, and we'll talk again, we'll talk about this when we get into uh, healing in the atonement, divine healing in the atonement. <clears throat> but you will see, first off in Isaiah 53, where he first starts talking about it, especially verses 4 and 5, and then down to verse 11 and 12. And it talks about specifically about 
It says, by his stripes we are healed. Present tense. Then you go to Matthew chapter 8 verse 16 and it says that Jesus healed them all so that it might be accomplished or fulfilled that which the prophet Isaiah said. And then he quotes Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. So he healed them all. For Jesus to fulfill that word, he had to heal them all. He couldn't have left anybody unhealed or that word would not be fulfilled. Which means, that word means in Isaiah 53, that everybody was healed at that time. Now, you go from there, and the funny thing is, that's in Matthew chapter 8. Obviously, Jesus is still alive walking the earth in his physical body. Then he is crucified, and then you read later in 1 Peter 2.24, and he says, By whose stripes ye were healed. Past tense. So something happened, we know, between 1 Peter 2.24 and Matthew chapter 8. That changed scripture. I mean, do you realize what would happen today if I misquoted scripture? Somebody would catch it and I'd get all kinds of letters. They'd call me a false teacher, false prophet, whatever, because I misquoted a scripture. Do you realize Peter technically misquoted Isaiah 53? Why? Because he used the wrong word. Isaiah said are, Peter said were, by whose stripes ye were healed. Right? So somebody could have said, oh, no, you're changing scripture. No, the difference was. Scripture changed because it was fulfilled. So there was a time when this switched from present tense to past tense. See, I have people all the time saying, you know, is, is healing for today? Is healing present today? Yes and no. Right? In other words, what I mean by that is this. Healing is past tense. Doesn't mean it doesn't happen anymore. Just saying, though, it was paid for. And now we walk in the benefits of the fact that it was paid for. So it's not a matter of trying to argue with God or convince God or twist God's arm to get him to do it. You and God agree. It's done. They're healed. So if there's any wrestling, obviously it is not with God. It is between you and the enemy over this person's body. Amen? You see that? And so we have to realize, and this, this is the essence of it. Once you realize... see. If you still think that God has to make a decision about a person's healing, then you can never truly pray in faith. Right? Because it might, it might not be God's will. For whatever reason, something may not happen. You know, it could be... And that's where we come with all these things. But once you accept the fact that, it was, that every person's healing was paid for by Jesus on that whipping post, and it's a done deal, then from then on, all your attention turns away from trying to get God to do it and you just realize the Bible says very clearly all the promises are in Him, yes, and in Him, so be it. Right? So if you hear no, it's not God. Right? Because it's already been paid for. So if you hear no, guess what? That's the enemy. So, and once you realize that, then it's never an if. Now you can pray in faith. See, you go into the battle recognizing the fact that God has already said I've already taken care of it. Go in there and mop it up. Go in there and, and just enforce it. So you're not going in there doubting, wondering what God's going to do. You're going in there on what God has already done. And you're going in there to say, and here, and let me tell you, devil, God's already done this, so you are going to leave. Now you can pray in faith. Because you're not doubting, you're not wavering, you're not thinking God's back there trying to change his mind in the middle of your battle. See, you accept it as a done deal. So now it's just a matter of charge. And we just keep on going until we get what we come for. Right? True faith starts with the answer. And then walks it out until it sees the answer in reality. You know, in your day-to-day -day living.
Now, if at any time along the way you stop, guess what? Your faith was weak, you stopped, you quit, you back off. Alright? Now, we're coming at this a little bit different angle than we normally do. But I want to get you understanding this from the beginning. Because once, once you start to see this, then you'll start saying, well, then what about this, what about that? And we're going to cover all those. But I want you to come from the answer first. And the answer is, Jesus has already paid the price for every person and has already decreed the healing of every person. So, God is not waiting for any person to do something to get healed or to live a certain way to get healed. God is waiting for believers to announce the glad tidings and the good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and to announce the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God, that God is superior over everything. That means over all sickness, over all disease, over all demons, and that the answer has already been given. And when you start from the end, then guess what? It makes things a lot easier, right? Because you're not guessing. That's one of the things that stood out. If you look at what they said about Jesus, one of the things that, he, that stood out about him was they said, this guy doesn't teach. Like the Pharisees, this guy teaches with authority. Well, how you cannot teach with authority if you're not sure. And to be sure, you have to know something's already done. There is nothing more sure than something that's already done. Amen? Once, they accept, or once you accept it as done, it's, a, it's, it's sure. There's no guessing, no backing off. And then it's just up to you to decide when do you stop. Well, if you're in faith, you stop when you get what you came for. Right? Give you one example here real quick. And this, you know, uh, just kind of messes up typical theology, basically. But remember whenever Jesus, the, the uh, Syrophoenician woman came to Jesus and said, My daughter has a devil. Right? And, and basically, Jesus told her no at that point. Why? Because he was specifically fulfilling the covenant made with Abraham that he had to come to the Jew first to present this because of the way the plan was laid out. And he made it very clear, I'm not sent to anybody at this point, to the Gentiles, but rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In other words, I have to present this to them first so that they can reject it so then it can go to the Gentiles. And whenever he told the woman, he basically said, you know, it's not, not right to give the children's bread to the dogs. Now, was Jesus God in the flesh? Did he speak for God on the earth? Was he the voice of God on the earth at that time? Okay. So the woman goes to the representative of God, says, heal my daughter, and the representative of God, the voice of God, says no. Right? I mean, you can't really get around that. He said no. Okay? And we don't like that. Cause, you know why we don't like it? Because we're afraid he's going to say no to us. But you've got to remember it was before the whipping post. He can't say no to what he has already said is done. You understand? See, this is where you got to get this. Now, once he said no, she said, oh, yeah, I hear you, but uh, that's not good enough. Right? Even the dogs get the crumbs. So God tells the woman no, and she says, no, I'm not taking no for an answer. <laughs> now, think about that. All right? now, does that mess up some theology or not? I mean, all right? and, and the amazing thing is this. God says no. The woman says, no, I'm getting it anyway. And then God turns around and says, wow, you've got great faith. Because of that, your daughter's healed. Yeah. So great. Now listen. Okay, we're going <laughs> to sift all this down. So great faith, in this case, means not taking no for an answer, even if God said no himself. That's pretty stout. 
<laughs> don't you think? But that's what happened. Now again, most times we don't bring that stuff up in church because everybody's afraid, well, if he said no to her, he can say no to you. And No, different time. Remember, don't identify necessarily with a Syrophoenician woman at this point because she's not you. Right? She hadn't already been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. She hadn't been recreated. She, hadn't, she wasn't a new creation. She didn't have the Spirit of God dwelling and living in her. Amen? So, as we were saying in the last one, there's four people to identify with if you're going to read the Gospels. Number one is the sick person. Number two would be the disciples. Number three would be the Pharisees. Number four is Jesus. Out of all four of those groups, Jesus is the only person there that you're like. He's the only person that has the Spirit of God dwelling in him like you do. None of the other people did at that point. So if you're going to identify with somebody in the Gospels, it has to be Jesus, not the others. Amen? Now, you must identify with Jesus. That's the whole key. Once you identify with Jesus, and you realize that you're going to walk as he said to walk, and you're going to walk like he walked. Didn't he say the same works I do, will you do also? And greater, will you do? Isn't that right? So if he said that, then he expects us to walk like him. And there's many other verses that say the same thing. If you say you're, you're in him, if you say you love God, you're going to keep his commandments. If you say you know Christ, if you say you're in Christ, then you should walk even as he walked. Right? Because there's just numerous scriptures. So we have to realize that we're going to identify with Christ. Then we're going to go in his name. Now, now listen carefully. Again, this is still kind of introduction. We're going to get into the details of this as we go along. And we're going to take questions. As a matter of fact, if you have questions, write them down on a piece of paper or something. And during the breaks, bring them up here and put them up here somewhere or get it to me. And I'll answer your questions. All right? But you have to realize that if you identify with Christ, when you go out and lay hands on the sick, what, what did he say in Mark 16? Right? Matter of fact, let's turn there real quick just so you can read it. It's always good if you have your own Bible and you can look at it and you see it yourself. In Mark 16, we'll start in verse 15. It says, And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. He that believes not shall be damned or condemned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. And what does that next part say? In my name shall they, right? And then he gives a list. They will cast out devils. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. If they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. And they shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. Now, all of these things are under the list of in my name. You're going to do, you don't go out in your own name, right? You know, you don't ever lay hands on the sick and say, you know, your name. You know, I wouldn't say in the name of Curry Blake, right? And you wouldn't use your name, right? Now, now listen carefully. If you have to live good enough for God to use you, then when you go out, and, and let's say you do that, let's say you live good enough for God to use you, then when you go out, you could say, in your name. You understand? But it doesn't say that. It says, in my name. So when we go out, we go out in His name. So we're not going out in our goodness, we're going out in His goodness. You understand? So if we're doing it in His name, it's what He did, not what we did. You understand? I'm not, I'm not talking about living loose. Again, I reiterate that all the time. But you have to realize, you're going in His name. So if someone, for instance, if I gave you a $20 bill, and said, you know, would you take this out and give it to my daughter out in the hallway? Then you're going to walk out there and say, your dad said for me to give you this. 
right? And you would give it to him. Okay? Now, you're doing that in my name. Right? You wouldn't walk out there and say, here, I just want to give you this $20. Right? Because you know I'd find out about it. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? But you're not going, it's not based on what you're doing. See, you're just handing the, the $20 off. It's not your $20. You didn't pay the price for it. Right? You're giving it to them in my name. Right? So when you go out and give out healing, you're not doing it in your name. You're not doing it based on what you did, your goodness, how you lived, and all that stuff. You're doing it based on what Jesus did. It's in His name. You understand? It's His goodness. It's, what, it's the work that He did that you're passing it on. So it really has nothing to do with you. Right? It's really the only effort you're putting forth is, in this instance would be walking out there and handing it off. Well, that's pretty much the way it is with healing. Right? That's why it's so easy. It, it's not yours. It's Jesus's. You're doing it in His name. Amen? Now, you have things to do with it. You have a part to play. But um, the overall, the essence of it is that simple. Amen? And that's why this stuff, it gets easier as you go along. So, now, let's look at this here real quick. In, yeah. God only has to say things one time for it to be a law. And yet, it's amazing because if you look at it, he said in Isaiah 53, he said in Matthew 8, verse 16, he says in 1 Peter 2:24, he says it roughly, he said it once and reiterated it twice more. And the last time being past tense because it was already done. So he re-emphasizes three times basically that Jesus' sacrifice paid for all mankind's healing. Now people say, well, you know, for everybody? Yep, everybody. Or just those that are saved? No, everybody. Everybody. He paid for everybody's, right? Now, here's the difference. And, and again, you have to get, well, what will happen is by the course of this teaching, uh, you will get a different viewpoint. It will cause you to see things differently. For example, a sinner, somebody that doesn't know God at all, can cry out to God in mercy and they can get healed. It's amazing, you know. But that's not we're, ta- well, not we're talking, not what we're talking about, right? We're talking about you learning how to minister healing. Now, you can minister healing to sinners or to Christians. You know, if you've been ministering very long, you probably know that it's much easier to minister healing to sinners than to his Christians. Right? I mean, it shouldn't be that way, but it's true. Right? And the reason it's that way is because sinners know they have no right, no reason to get healed, and they just throw themselves on the grace and mercy of God. And they're just great, you know, grateful that you would bring them this gift and give it to them. Whereas Christians will fight you over being sick. Well, you know, it's this, it's that. I, you know, I hadn't done this. I hadn't done, and they try to earn it. And the minute you start to try to earn it, or to try to defend your reason for getting it or something, you are relying on your righteousness and you are denying the righteousness of Jesus. Right? And we have to realize everything we get comes through Him. See, God doesn't ask much. All He says is give Him credit. You know, just, just recognize what Jesus did and do it through that. Not yours. Because yours is filthy rags. Based on, on you outside of Him. Right? Now when you're born again, your righteousness is of God. Right? That's what the Bible says. And so you have to realize that. But the more you try to rely on your good works to get you there, the further it actually moves you away from God and the further it moves you into religion. Right? And believe me, religion is a hard taskmaster. Because you're never good enough, you never pray enough, you never fast enough, you never do, you never do anything enough or good enough. Right? And so it's much easier to go in Jesus' name and on His righteousness. Amen?
Now, the things to remember is this too. And, and we, we will come back to this a little bit later on, but I want to emphasize this. There are four, roughly four groups of people that you'll be dealing with. Now, as I said before, we can get sinners or saints healed. Real, real simple. A sinner can get it for himself if he can just trust God, ask God, mercy of God, or even have faith towards God. Sinners can have faith in God. right? You can have faith in God for healing and not for salvation. And so God, you can actually have faith because you have to, okay, for those of you who don't believe that's true, remember, nobody before the cross was born again. Right? And yet the centurion had faith for his servant to be healed. Right? He wasn't born again. So there's a sinner. Okay, not just a sinner, but as we would look at it and people say, well, look at there, there's a, an oppressor of Israel. Right? Surely he couldn't be in right standing with God. And yet Jesus said he had more faith than Israel. Right? So maybe that tells us that God doesn't look at Israel the same way we do sometimes. Maybe in Galatians, if you read that, it says those that are of Abraham are those that are of faith. Just something to think about. Right? We'll talk about it later on maybe. Okay? But we have to realize that these people, so you can be unsaved and have faith. Because we know people do. I mean, let's put it this way. If you don't believe that you can have faith and not, and not be saved, then you couldn't get saved. Right? Because when you were unsaved, you had to have faith to get saved. So, you understand that? Pretty simple, isn't it? So, unsaved can have faith in God, right? And you have to to get saved, but you could also have it for healing. That's why people, that's why many times people start ministering healing and they think they're right with God because God's given signs and wonders. And that doesn't mean anything. It just means God loves those people. Doesn't mean see God giving you signs and wonders doesn't mean he, that you're right with Him. You understand? It, it just means that God loves the people that the signs and wonders are being performed on. So don't use that as a sign. Hey, well, God must think I'm okay. It doesn't, right? Jesus means God thinks you're okay. Okay? You understand that? Right. Yeah. Four groups or four yeah four groups of people that can get healing. Now, as a believer, for instance, well, we'll just start. First off, you have, you know, just sinners, right? Uh, Mark 16, you, you might even want to jot some of these things down. In Mark 16, that is a believer giving an unbeliever healing. So unbelievers, if they can't get it for themselves, then they should find a believer that can give them healing. And as a believer, because God has given believers authority over all sickness and disease and over all devils, then a believer can find an unbeliever and can set them free because that sickness or disease must obey the believer. So the sinner, the unbeliever, lives in the benefit of the believer's walk with God. Right? Or his connection with God. Does that make sense? So that would be the first level. Mark 16, verse 18 there, would actually be the one that we're talking about. Okay? That gives the believer the right to set any sinner free. Right there, that's your basic right. Now, so the un the unbeliever can be healed by a believer walking in his God-given authority. Okay, so that's the first one. Next one, we would look at James, chapter five, verses fourteen through sixteen, and James says very clearly: if a person now, now remember this, James, most people whenever they get saved, or when you let's say you lead somebody to the Lord. Most people then tell them, and when you, as soon as you get saved, now here, read the Gospel of John. All right? I never do that. Mainly because John said, 
these things were written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. Right? So if you're getting them the Gospel of John after they believe he's the Christ, it's kind of, you're kind of working behind the, the curve there. Right? Nothing wrong with reading it, but just what I do instead, because they already believe, so they, don't, they don't need John to believe that Jesus is the Christ. So I take them to James. James is the, the, about the perfect, matter of fact, I'll tell you this too, James is a much shorter book than John. And new believers are more likely to read a shorter book than a longer book. All right? They haven't generally developed the love for the Word of God yet. So, and it's good because it's a how-to manual. I mean, it is the basic theology primer for a new Christian. Everything you need to, really, to walk the Christian life is right there in James. In five books, or five chapters. It's amazing. He tells you how to deal with people, how to handle people, how to treat people that are uh, dressed or have less than you do. It, it teaches you not to have respect of persons. It tells you how to watch your mouth and don't say things and don't bless and curse out of the same mouth and, and about your words. I mean, all the basics are there. And he says, oh, by the way, since you're a new believer, if you get sick, shame on you. You're in sin and you don't have enough faith. Is that what he says? He doesn't say that, does he? Matter of fact, he says, look, if you're a new believer and you get sick, don't even worry about that stuff. Just call for the elders. Why? Because they can still come and bring healing to you. Why? Because you're just a step above the sinner. Right? Now, if a believer, an elder, can bring healing to an unbeliever, surely he can bring it to a new believer. Right? But he doesn't condemn them for getting sick. He just says, if you are sick, we're going to, we'll, again, remember, we're going to look at all these in detail, piece by piece. But later on, he says, or in James there, he says, and if you get sick, call for the elders. And the elders will come, and the elders are going to pray the prayer of faith. They're going to anoint with oil in the name of the Lord. Right? Now, anointing with oil, that's always a sense thing and was always symbolic of the presence of the Holy Spirit and them praying the prayer of faith. And we'll, again, we're going to talk about these in details a little later on. But what you're going to see in here is that the believer or the elder comes in, anoints him with oil, prays the prayer of faith. Now, notice, and it says, and the prayer of faith shall save or heal the sick. Now, who's praying the prayer of faith? The elder. Not the sick person, right? So the elder is responsible to get the sick healed, right? It is not necessarily the new believer that is responsible for getting themselves well. Now, admit it, they should be growing because sooner or later they should be an elder and they should be praying for the sick and they should be getting them well. They should be discipling people, right? It should go right on. It has to be a constant cycle. But one thing to notice here too is to be an elder, you have to be able to get the sick healed. Right? Shouldn't be an elder if you can't get the sick healed. Because how could you how could we send you to pray for the sick if you can't get the sick healed? Right? Now, so right then it tells them what to do. So the next and then then it even says, Pray for one another that you may be healed. And that's talking about your relationship more than anything else. But it is a good sowing and reaping aspect. So you got the unbeliever, Mark sixteen, you got the new believer, that's James chapter five. Then you have for the believer that's been around, knows better, knows some things, but for whatever reason gets sick then healing was provided. Now, do you realize that what we call a healing service? See, Saturday night we're going to have a healing service. I think I'll send you to break again. <clears throat> but we're going to have a healing service Saturday night, and people are going to line up, and then we're going to pray for them, right? Do you realize that was not done in the early church? Right? There's no record of that being done. Healings were always done in the body of believers when they gathered together around the Lord's table. Right? Well, now, first off, that was for people that are what we well 
You have to realize that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And the book of Corinthians was written not to spiritually minded, mature Christians. But according to chapter 3, it was written to carnally minded, immature Christians. Babes in Christ. Right? So, and he said in 1 Corinthians 11, it talks about the Lord's Supper. And it says if you don't partake correctly, then you, you, that's why some of you are sick. And that's why some of you die young. So if you partake correctly, you don't have to die young and you can be healed. So the normal method of healing for a believer was not through the hands of someone else, but was through partaking of the Lord's Supper and recognizing that by His stripes His body was broken for my sicknesses. And see, God is trying to move you toward a more personal relationship with God so that you get it for yourself. Because generally, if you can't get it for yourself, you're probably not going to be that great at giving it to somebody else. Right? Which is God's plan. Right? So there's three categories. And then the fourth category is Romans chapter 8. And he says, if that, now this is for the mature believer. This is how mature believers are supposed to be healed. Romans chapter 8 says, if that same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he will quicken your mortal body. Quicken means to make alive, heal, make whole. Your mortal, your earthly body, right? By that same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. So for the mature believer, it's not through having hands laid on. It is through you recognizing that the Spirit of God dwells in you. If the Spirit of God that is in you is the same one that raised Jesus from the dead, He can fix your body. And when you recognize that, all you have to do is release the Spirit of God out of your spirit into your flesh. And when you do, He is healing to all your flesh. That's healing for the mature believer. So that's the four ways or four categories in how to get people healed. Right? So, take a break. We will come back in ten minutes and do a short session. Okay? So, come back in ten minutes. All right? Now, we want to cover a couple of things because, uh, as I said, we're, we're pleased to be here. We're going to be ministering healing and ministering in various, various other aspects of, of the Word of God. But uh, tonight, specifically, and uh, on the way out, as a matter of fact, actually we would have been here uh, a little earlier, but uh, we got caught in Joburg traffic on the way out, which uh, now I understood the admonitions to leave early. So we got caught in that, but once we got uh, out of the city, it was pretty good driving, so it went well. But on the way out, I was talking to my daughter, and it just amazes me that how, and then actually she brought this up too, about how well God just takes care of all aspects of things. You know, He doesn't leave anything undone. And when He does something, He does it well all the way around. And... One of the worst things, I think, in the church that we have uh, seen over the years is the idea that God only helps people when they reach a certain level. You ever notice that? People say, well, you know, I want to get baptized. Well, first thing, it's always, well, I want to get saved. Well, God will save you if you'll do this. God will save you if you'll do that. Well, you know, you've got to do this. Well, you've got to believe. You've got to accept Him, right? Turn to Him. But 
they always have all these rules and it's like you have to achieve a certain amount of spirituality before you can even get saved. You know, as a matter of fact, the Jehovah Witnesses, before they will announce that you are saved, you have to take a test. That's a fact. They, they, there's a test that you have to take with, I believe, uh, it was something like 180 questions or something at one time. It was, you have to pass a test before they'll say, yeah, you're saved. All right? thank, thank God Jesus passed the test for me. Amen. I don't have to pass the test. Jesus passed it for me. Now, and then it's amazing when you look at what some people back in the old days, you know, you want to get filled with the Holy Ghost. Man, you had to take off your jewelry. Right? Well, you know, and they'd be down the front and somebody would be yelling, hang on, hang on. And the other person would be yelling, let go, let go. And you didn't know what to do. And then someone would say, well, I'll tell you what, God will baptize you in the Holy Ghost if you just take off your jewelry. If you take off your, your necklace, if you take off your, some even, say, even said, if you take off your wedding band, then God will, you know, if, if you'll take off that gold wedding band, then God will fill you with the Holy Ghost. Now, I, you know, I don't think God's a hypocrite. And God won't baptize someone with the Holy Ghost until they take off a little bitty band of gold. And yet Jesus has a girdle of gold. Come on. I don't think, I don't think a little band of gold hurts God that much. Amen. I don't think he's that concerned with it. And then, then it went on from there and people say, well, you know, God will heal you if you'll do this. Well, God will heal you if you'll do that. And, there, and usually the list to get healed is longer than any other list there is just about. And they, they kept going through all these things. And, and as I studied the Word, I just realized, looking through this, God has made a way of healing for every person. We know that's through the redemption of Jesus, through the stripes. You realize the only reason we get healed is because of those stripes. It's those stripes. He bore the stripes, we're healed, it's done, simple as that. Amen? There's no other reason... For us to get healed. Now there's there's methods of healing. But the reason of healing is those stripes. Because that's the only thing he ever tells us that we are healed by. Right? It is by his stripes that we are healed. And so that's the first thing. Now, and beyond that, it's amazing because <clears throat> the the stripes give us, I would say, the right to walk in healing. That's just one way to say it. But then you've got all these people. You've got unsaved people. You've got saved people. You've got brand new saved people. You've got people that have been saved a long time and have never grown. And you've got some people that have been saved just a short while and have just grown tremendously. Then you've got people that have been saved a long time and have grown. See, you've got all this blend of people. And you've got people at every stage of growth. And for some reason in the church in the past, we've always tried to put limits on God. We've always tried to say, well, God won't do it until you do this, or God won't do it because of that, and, you know, well, if you do this, then God will do that. Well, there are certain aspects of things where God can't do certain things until you do certain things, but healing ain't one of them, basically, because it's based on the stripes of Jesus. But there are methods, and God has provided a way for every person to be healed, and it doesn't matter what stage of spiritual development you're at. Now, that in itself is good news. Amen? I mean, think about it. You don't have to think, well, really all you've got to do is just find yourself in the Bible. That's all you've got to do. If you can find yourself in the Bible, then you can receive your healing. Your healing's already been paid for. And tonight, I'm going to give you those basically four categories. I really don't like 
categories and steps and that kind of stuff generally because people try to follow a, a method or a formula rather than just drawing near to God. But I, I, want, I just want to show you how good God is by providing means and methods for every person to be healed. Now on the way out, I was going over some of this with my daughter, just mentioned these four things, just almost in passing, and just said these kind of four groups. And I told about how each group, there was a method provided for each person in that group to be healed. And of course, one of them, which we all know, is through communion. And so in tonight, I had planned to discuss communion as one part of these four parts that we're going to talk about. And then just before I got up to speak, Brother Kobus said, we, he didn't know anything about what I was speaking about. I have not talked to him about anything. And he said, we have communion ready over there if you, if you want to serve communion. And so I told my daughter, I said, that's divine. Amen. That, that, again, God takes care of everything. He always provides it. So we're not just going to talk about it, then we're also going to practice it. And, I, you know, almost like, pretty much like everything else I teach, I got a good testimony of healing through communion, right? I, not just one, but there's one I'll probably tell you about. But I just want to show you how good God is. Now, there's some other things that we want to get to, and I'm going to be cognizant of my time also. But I want to just share a couple of things. There's kind of two parts. I want to give you these four categories of people, if you want to call them that, four groups. But I also want to emphasize one thing. God is so good to us that it's only right that we be good to others. Amen? I mean, we just saw that. We saw a demonstration of that. Uh, you know, the Van, Rid, Van Rensburg, get my words out here, I'm getting dragging. They're good to people because God has been so good to them. And they bless people and they can't out-bless God, I mean, God blesses them back overly and that's the way it works. Now, I will say this. As a matter of fact, we'll, we'll just agree with y'all what we said. We've already agreed as we were sitting there. But I agree right now and, and declare, and I'm sure you're going to agree with me as I say this. We declare that every dime for the new cameras and for the five buses will come in and be paid for before they're asked for the money for the cameras. Amen? So be it in Jesus' name. Now, one thing, I, one, one reason, one of many reasons I always enjoy coming here is because I love getting around people that stretch me. And when I get around y'all and get around Spirit Word, I get stretched. Because I, I come in, I look around, I think, glory to God. If God can do this in Stillfontaine, He can do this back in Denver. He can do it in the United States. He can do it in other places around Africa. Amen? So it's always good. And, one, and again, Brother Covis never fails. The first thing, he hadn't even finished one project and he's already talking about others. Alright? Now, that's, that's the Spirit of God. See, your, your, your grasp should never exceed your vision. You understand? What you can put your hands on should never exceed your vision. But there is nothing worse than being satisfied. You understand? There's a big world out there. It needs Jesus. So there is always more to be done. And people say, why can't you just be satisfied with this? Why can't you just be satisfied with that? Why do you always feel like you have to be pushing? Why do you always feel like you have to be reaching? 
because that's the Spirit of God. Right? He's much bigger than what we're seeing. And we're looking to the ends of our horizon of faith. And when we get to where we can see, we can see further. And that's what I see every time I come here. You're always reaching, always stretching, always advancing the kingdom of God. I love that. And that's, that's one of the reasons why I like coming here. Because I know I'm going to get stretched. I'm going to get pushed. I'm going to go away with a larger vision. You know, every time I come here, Sister Annalise talks about your vision for television. We're getting it. Amen. We're getting it. And, and you are blessing us. You know, we're on two times a week already. That's a blessing. And to be honest with you, it wasn't my vision. In other words, I wasn't pushing by faith to get it done. It was the blessing they gave me. Amen? But I'm jumping in there. I'm running. Okay? We're going to get it done. So, now, a couple of things. I want to give you these four. But before we get there, there's one thing. And I always try to emphasize an aspect of this because if we are blessed, like I said, we should be blessing others. Amen? I'm not going to take up another offering, right? If I did, it'd be okay, but I'm not going to, all right? But I just wanted to let you know, my whole purpose, if you read Ephesians 4, the purpose for the ministry is to equip the saints so that they can do the work of the ministry, so that they can introduce people to Jesus, and so that they can demonstrate Jesus to the people and give them an opportunity to know the real Jesus. Not the religious Jesus, right? Not the old traditional Jesus that is always stern and waiting to just smack you down when you mess up just one little bit. But the Jesus that before we were even here saw ahead and provided everything we need and everything we'll ever need. Amen? So because of that, everything I do is based on that of equipping you to reach people and to do and be who you're supposed to be. Amen? Now you're all, now listen carefully. You are already who you're supposed to be. My job is to show you how to actualize that, how to realize it, how to actually do certain things that can grow you up so that you look more like Jesus, so that you can do what Jesus would do if he was where, wherever you are. Right? You might have to decipher that, but it makes sense if you think about it. Alright? Now, to do that, the Bible, there's only one way that the Bible says you're going to be changed. Only one. That means you can't come up with another way to do it. Okay? Just like righteousness. You try to come up with your own righteousness, guess what? It don't work. There's only one way for your life to be completely changed. Or, as you might know the word, transformed. And that is through the renewing of your mind. So in other words, you already are who you're supposed to be. And if you're not looking like the person that you already are, it's because your problem is in your head. Your mind must be renewed so that your mind is the mind of Christ, which matches up with the Spirit of Christ who is in you, so that your mind and your spirit work together to present Jesus to the world. And until your mind is renewed, your life will not be transformed. Right? And that means that what is in you won't be seen on the outside. That if you go read Romans 12, 1 through 3, that's what it's all talking about there. And so my job is to help you transform. Now, we know that the only way to do that is through the renewing of the mind. So you have to have your mind renewed. No other way. 
know, I mean, we lay hands, we can impart gifts, we can do these things, and it's always good and it's a blessing. But it's not a transformation. You understand? We can bless you, we can get you healed, but you're going to have to keep yourself healed. Amen? So, there's an aspect that you can do, and that's what we're going to be talking about some tonight, about the four groups. You'll find yourself in one of those, but at any level you are, you can be healed. Alright? Now, but we want to talk about how to get transformed for just a minute, and I really want to emphasize this, because, you know, a couple of things... We, I've given you other testimonies uh, the other times I've been here and almost every testimony I give concerning the word of God or concerning a, a, a testimony of faith where God we stood on his word and he came through and demonstrated himself and proved his word true it always came after a time where we had the opportunity to back off the word every time right? and, and it's funny because it always looks like God is late you know, he should have got there before we were severely tested. But that's part of the plan. Right? God wants you to shine. And the only way you can really shine is whenever everyone else is ready to run and you keep standing there saying, Nope, God will come through. God will come through. God will come through. That's the only way you can really shine. Because anybody can run when the, you know, when the heat's on. Right? Anybody can run. It doesn't, matter of fact, the world runs when the heat's on. Christians have to run into the heat. Amen? Because we know when we're in the fiery furnace, there is one like unto the Son of God who's there with us. Amen? We're not orphans. We're not left alone. God is with us. Now, our problem is, and, and this is some of the things to think about. In James chapter 1, if you want to turn there real quick, you can turn over there. I want to give you just a couple of scriptures. You can write them down or you can just turn there. But in James, and you might bear with me, I'm working out of a new Bible tonight, so they don't always, even if they do open the way you want, things are different. And if you're used to using a Bible, you look in one place and it's not there and you have to look and find out where it is in your new Bible. So I'm working out of a new one, so bear with me if I seem... I really do read the Bible and I know where it's at. I just might not know where it's at in this Bible, okay? So, but in James chapter 1, probably one of my, well, one of my favorite verses, the one that's on t-shirts that we've done, different things, is that we are, we are training believers to be doers of the Word and not just hearers. Many people are hearers and not doers. Amen? Now, and they think they're doers because they're hearing. And they think hearing is being a doer. Hearing's not doing. You've got to hear it and then do it. And if you're not doing what you're hearing, you're not a doer, you're just a hearer. And the Bible says if you're just a hearer, not a doer, then you deceive your own self. Right? The devil doesn't even have to do it. You do it to yourself. Right? Now, there's a lot of people like that. So the first thing that you have to agree with or you have to, to come to the realization is... Number one, you've got to change. Amen? If you're not getting the results you want, you've got to do something different. You can't keep doing the same thing and just think it's going to change. It's not. Nothing changes till you do. Alright? Do you understand that? Now, you say, how am I going to change? He says right here in uh, James chapter 1 verse 22. But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving your own selves 
For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass and a mirror. For he beholds himself and goes his way and straightway forgets what manner of man he was. Now this verse is literally just pregnant with revelation. Just one verse. Of course, every verse is. But when you read this, he says, a man that hears the words. For instance, let's say, if you are in church regularly, and you're sitting there and you hear the word, okay? Now, you're already in this verse. Amen? You're already there. If you hear the word, you're already in this verse. Now, you get to decide what part of the verse you fulfill. Right? He says that if a person hears the word, verse 23, and is not a doer, then, then he is like a person, a man, who looks at himself in a mirror. Now, he's likening the word to a mirror. Right? And so, basically, it's funny because we say, if you want to see Jesus, look in the word. That's true. But if you want to see you, look in the word. Why? Because you're supposed to grow up into Him in all things. Amen? This is who you are. Right? Now you say, well, that don't look like me. I read right there and it says, you know, they lay hands on the sick and they recover. Uh, that don't, don't look like me. That's who you are in here. Now you've got to have your mind renewed so that what's in there can be seen on the outside. You've got to start being a doer of the Word, not just a hearer. Right? If you don't lay hands on the sick, you're not going to see anybody get healed. Right? So the first step is what? Start laying hands on the sick. You say, well, I've laid hands on the sick and didn't see him healed. Uh, that's okay. That's a start. Right? Better to be obedient without results than to be disobedient without results. Right? I mean, come on. If you're, if you're going to be obedient and disobedient and both without results, better to be obedient without results than, than, than disobedient. Right? But the beauty is, when you get your mind renewed and you're obedient, guess what? You get results. Amen? God doesn't want you obedient without results. He doesn't want just obedience. He wants obedience with results. Why? Because it doesn't do any good for you to just be obedient if that person's still going to die. Right? Now, watch what he says. So, now, you see yourself. You're here. You're the hearer of the Word. And if you hear the Word and then you leave and you don't go do what you heard, it says that you are like a person who looks in a mirror sees who you are and then walks away and forgets who you are. Now what's the first thing we're told to do? Look into here. Right? We're to look at this word because this is who we are. So if we're not looking at this word then your chances of actually doing this word are zero. Right? So you've got to look in this word first. So it is important that we always know what we're looking at. Your battles will be intensified or diminished based on what you look at. You understand? If you look at this instead of garbage TV, right? Then, yeah, you're going to have battles, but guess what? Even though the battle itself may be much worse, your position in the battle is going to be easier. See, the more you look at other stuff and the less at this, then the more your mind is divided and you're thinking like the other stuff more than you are this. 
And when you think more like that than you do this, then you're divided and you're torn. And when that happens, you are, your battle within yourself is the greatest. Right? Because the battle, really the whole battle we're in is the battle of faith. It's right? It's the fight of faith. And the fight of faith is just to stay on this word. Everything the devil does is to try to get you off of this word. To get you to say, it ain't working. To get you to say, "Ah, well, that might have been true, but it's not true in my case. That's the fight. So all we have to do is stay single-minded. That's what Jesus said. He said, be single-minded. If your eye be single, he said, then your light will be great. Right? He said, but if your eye isn't single then your light will actually be darkness. Now think about that. You can have light that's dark. Right? So our job is no matter what happens, we look at this. Right? We knew even under the Old Testament, it said don't let this word depart from you. Right? In other words, don't ever let it sit on the shelf and you do nothing with it. It said you meditate in it day and night. It said when you get up and when you go to bed. It said you tell your kids about it. And you teach it to your children. Right? Now that means that this is what we're supposed to focus on. And I guarantee you the biggest fight you'll have is to try to get you... Everything the devil does is to try to deny a scripture. No matter what he's trying to get you to do, no matter what battle you're going through, there is a scripture that directly applies to that situation that he's trying to keep you from walking in. And if whenever a battle comes, you will go to the scripture, find that scripture and say, here's what the Lord says. And then you can look at the devil and say, devil, excuse me, it is written. Right? Now, I don't know if you remember the old Ten Commandments movie with Charlton Heston, remember? And it had uh, Yul Brenner as the the Pharaoh. And he always said, so let it be written, so let it be done. Right? Guess what? Well, it's written and it's done. Amen? Now, our whole job is to decide how done it is. Right? I know that's not good English, but hey, okay. You didn't bring me here for an English lesson, right? So our job is to decide this word. Now, the greatest lesson I've ever learned about the word of God is this. It's past tense. Amen? It is amazing how past tense the word is. And the problem is, most of the time, in the battle, it seems like the battle is present and the Word of God is future as opposed to past tense. Because if they say, well, they say you're sick and your body says it's sick. And then you read the Word and it says, oh, by His stripes you're healed. Well, now, see, you've got a contradiction. And you've got to decide whose report will you believe. Amen? I'm telling you, I know this is so simple, but this is the crux of the matter. This is the very basic lesson that you have to learn about the Word of God. You cannot be moved from the Word of God. No matter what somebody says, no matter what somebody does, no matter what's going on in your life or your loved one's life or anybody else's life around you, you have to say, thus saith the Lord, it is written. Amen? Now, I know that's it. See, the problem is, now I don't know about, I'm not going to ask at this point, well at some point, I don't know what battles you're going through. I don't know how many of you came in here sick. 
I don't know how many of you are barely sick. Maybe just a little bit sick. I don't know how many of you came in here and the doctor said, you know, five days ago that you had three days to live. Right? Well, if that's the case, then you are in trouble. Amen? You're in a situation that you have to decide. Now, if you, maybe you're sitting next to a person that has been given a death sentence by the doctors. That could be the case. Now, do you realize the difference of the battle between you and the person sitting next to you? You're sitting there saying, I need to know this because the next time I get sick, I'm going to stand on the Word. Well, that's real good and it's great that you're getting it now. But the person next to you is in the middle of the fire. Do you understand? And you are in two different worlds at that moment. Because whenever you've been given a death sentence, a lot of times everybody can be talking about anything under the sun, but most of it you don't even hear. Because all you can hear a lot of times is what that doctor said. And you play it over and over in your head. That's normal. That's what happens. Right? Now, what you have to decide is where you're going to look. What are you going to decide? What are you going to stand on? You... Now, I... I, I, not, I listen. God has blessed me. All through my life, I have been probably more healthy than most anybody you probably know. I mean... Even, well, I got literally saved when I was nine. <clears throat> but even past that, and I didn't know anything about healing, didn't know anything about the Word of God per se. But all my life, I've been pretty physically healthy. Had a couple of situations, different things going on. Most of my stuff has been more accidents. And when I got hit by the car when I was 17 months old, that was a pretty big deal. Of course, I had nothing to do with any of that. My mom was praying. But then when I was uh, 12, I got stepped on by a horse. And it ruptured my appendix. And within a matter of hours, I was in the hospital and they were taking out my appendix. And so, but that's not a sickness, that's an injury. So my, my, I've been physically healthy a lot. And I'm not saying I've never been sick by any stretch. But I've been very blessed. But the areas where I've had my test have been more in the areas of my family. Where when my first daughter was born, she was born with a mangioma tumor. Many of you probably have already heard my testimony on that. And when, a, when your baby is born, especially your first baby, I was 18 years old. Actually, I was 19 at that point. My wife was, was 18. And you're expecting this blessed event to be just that, a blessed event. And as soon as the baby's born, they rush the baby out of the room. You can't, don't know what's going on. And all you see is this large tumor in her tongue that was outside of her mouth. And it looked horrible. And you didn't know if she was going to live or die for the next five minutes. And within 12 hours, we're on an airplane flying across the state of Texas to a children's hospital. And the doctor's holding your baby. I never even got to hold my own baby until she was six months old. And when we got her out of the hospital. And until then, she was in intensive care and all these things going on and needles and, and uh, tubes and all this stuff. And so we stood and we believed God. Now, at that point, we didn't know that much. We knew God could heal. We just didn't know how to get Him to do it. And when she was three years old, she passed away. And as many of you know, that was whenever we... Well, actually, we had started studying healing before that. But at that point, I stood at the grave and told God, God, if there was no man for me when I needed one. But if you will teach me about healing, I will be that man for somebody else. And we started studying healing and going after it. Amen. Amen. And so, 
we've, we've had experiences. And I could go through each one of my children. As you know, my daughter Rebecca, uh, whenever she was seven years old, fell out of a second-story window, fell about 30 feet, was dead for 45 minutes. And we got down on our knees. Actually, I carried her around for about 25, 25 30 minutes. Then took, and she was still dead after that time. We took her into our house, and I set her against the wall, propped up against the wall. She was dead. Still no heartbeat, no breath, nothing. And as I put her against the wall, her head was down, her arms were down. I got down in front of her, and I kept saying, and I'd already been doing this for the 25 minutes previous, but all I said over and over again, as loud as I could, was I pointed my finger at her and I said, in the name of Jesus, you will live and not die. But she was dead. And I, but I kept saying, you will live and not die. But she was dead. Do you understand that? What was I seeing? Well, I didn't see a vision, but I was seeing the end result. I was doing what the Bible says Abraham did when he calls those things which be not as though they were. Now notice it does not say to call those things which be as though they are not. So if you're sick, you don't go, I'm not sick, I'm not sick, I'm not sick. Right? No. The sick say, I am healed. Why? Then you're calling those things which be not as though they were. Do you understand the difference? Now, and then when it comes to manifestation, then you can say, I was sick, but now I'm healed. Amen? And it's in manifestation. Now, I did that again for another 20 minutes or so, and then all of a sudden, she came back. And and that was the first one we ever saw come back. Since then, we've seen nine others come back and in various situations. But... What I'm trying to get across is every time I had the opportunity to give up. Everything we've seen, you reach a point where you literally feel, I can't go on. And at that moment is when you find out if you have been a Christian in your own strength or if you are truly relying on Jesus. Because at that moment, when you run out of strength and you say, I can't do another minute, I can't go another minute like this. At that moment, if you'll just take a deep breath, and before you say anything else, you will recognize the presence of Jesus there with you, saying, you can't, but I can. And because He is with you, you will. Do you understand? So you keep on going. That is, that's all faith is. Faith is when you get out of yourself and you get over into Him. That's all it is. And you keep going. That, and that's why I keep emphasizing this because I want you to understand there has to come a point in your life when you become a doer of the Word, you don't just hear it, and you decide when all else fails, when it all comes down, when nothing looks like it's working right, I choose to stand. And beyond, let me tell you, I, <clears throat> I just call it divine stubbornness. Right? If you can just be divinely stubborn, if you go back and read the Gospels and how Jesus dealt with people, they would say all kinds of stuff to Him. He'd say, you want to be healed? Uh, I ain't got no man. I ain't got nobody. And every time I try, they just start complaining. Jesus totally ignored what He said. Totally ignored it. Over and over again, Jesus absolutely ignored people that contradicted the Word of God. And He would just say, you want to be here? Okay, then that's the way. Or you want this? Okay, let's do it. And He would go into a, to a funeral, 
Everybody's screaming and crying. And he'd say, she's not dead. She's just sleeping. And they started laughing him to scorn, right? And, and one minute they're crying, the next minute they're all laughing at him. And making And he just literally, they put him out of the house, but he just ignored He didn't say, oh, you're right. Yes, silly me, she is dead. Right? And when even Lazarus, Jesus actually told him at one point, look, you don't get it, he's dead. I mean, they, his disciples were just so dull at that point, so thick-headed, that he had to tell them, and it's really the only time he ever really mentioned death and said somebody was really dead like that. Why? Because of the thick-headedness of the disciples, not because he just went around saying that. And so over and over again, you see, Jesus just ignored people. He was so stubborn about the Word. And one thing I loved about it, and I, I've, I've learned to do this, I've learned to let people talk, and I just keep walking. And when I learned that, my entire life changed. Because I've had people say things to me, I've had people do things to me, and it did not matter. And especially in the areas of sickness or disease or death or something like that. Because I know this. Maybe they have the, the luxury of contradicting the Word of God. But if I'm the one who is supposed to be having faith for this person, I don't have the luxury of backing off the Word of God. So I have to learn to keep my mouth shut Take the ridicule. And believe me, if you're going to minister healing very much, you're going to get ridiculed, right, for, for what you believe and how you believe it. And just keep my mouth shut and keep on walking. And they say, don't, but don't you see? Don't you understand? And I look at it, I understand perfectly. But, but you can't understand, because if you did, you'd be as upset as I am. No, I understand why you're upset. But I got this word. This word says... And I can't, I would love, let, let me tell you. See, you got to understand, I am absolutely human. I know that's a shock to many of you, alright? But I am absolutely human. You think I don't ever want to say it ain't working? I'm telling you, there are times when I have to just literally bite my lip, keep my mouth shut, because I'm afraid if I open it, it's going to jump out there. And so you just have to learn just to... Grit your teeth. Just, I hate to say it this way, I'm not trying to be rude, but you just have to learn to shut your mouth and keep walking. Why? Because we walk by faith, not by sight. Now, if what you're looking at brings turmoil, you're not looking at the Word of God, you're looking at the circumstances because we walk by faith and not by sight. Are you getting this? You understand? I'm telling you, this is basic level walking by faith. And if you get this, and you get so steadfast about it, and you get so stubborn that no matter what anybody says, you won't say... Let me put it this way. You already know this part. How many of you believe in the prayer of agreement? It works, doesn't it? Guess what? The devil believes in the prayer of agreement. And any person that comes to you and tries to get you to agree with them that the Word is not working knows why they may not know why they're doing it, but the devil knows why they're doing it. He is trying to get the prayer of agreement to work in the negative. Do you understand that? So you don't have the luxury of agreeing 
with someone who says something that disagrees with the Bible. You've got to decide who you're going to agree with and whoever you agree with, that's what's going to come to pass. You get that? Now, so you have to decide what you're going to look at. Are you going to look at the circumstances? You're going to look at the illness? You're going to look at the symptoms? Or are you going to look at the Word of God that says, By His stripes you were healed? Now, if you're going to look at the Word of God and someone says, But don't you see it ain't working? You can look at them and go, I just praise God. His Word is working mightily in me. Right? may not be working mightily in you, but it's working mightily in me. Amen? Do you understand? You're not put on this earth for everybody to agree with you and like you. Right? You're going to need several freedoms and the best, well, no, maybe not the best, <clears throat> but the most freeing freedom that you will ever get is freedom from yourself. Think about that. We know out of Romans 8 that we are guaranteed freedom from the law of sin and death. Amen? That's a good one. Amen? It's a real good one. We have been, and we see from the scriptures, that it says that people were in bondage to the fear of death all the days of their life. But this new covenant breaks the bondage of the fear of death. Amen? Now, if you still have or, or are in bondage to the fear of death, you're not walking in the new covenant. Do you understand? Now, there are other freedoms. One is the freedom of fear of men. That's a good one. Amen? Because if you have the fear of men, especially if you minister, you'll preach what they want to hear rather than what God wants you to tell them. And, and until then, until you get freedom from the fear of men, you will always be a man pleaser. Right? And that is not the will of God for your life. You are to be a God pleaser, not a man pleaser. Now let me ask you, what pleases God? Faith. Right? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. What is faith? Taking His Word. See, the greatest faith is to take a specific... Well, let me put it this way. Yeah, let me say it this way. The greatest faith that you can operate in is to take a general promise and apply it to a specific situation in your life. Right? And the more general the promise, the greater faith you're operating in as you apply it to the specific situation. Do you understand? Now, because of that, if he says, and nothing shall by any means hurt you, Romans, or, I'm sorry, uh, Luke 10, 19, right? He gives you power, ability, power, authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions and overall the ability of the enemy, right? And nothing shall by any means hurt you. What? If you can take, that's a pretty broad promise. If you can take that promise and apply it to any specific situation, you are operating in a greater faith than you having, whenever you need money, having to go to a money scripture and pull that out. You understand? Because you're taking a broad promise and applying it to the specific. Now, it's something to think about. But that's how faith operates. Now, <clears throat> in this, notice what he says, because I want to get back in here, I want to show you. What you have to look at is the Word of God. Is that right? And if you look into the Word of God, you're looking at yourself. This is about you. 
because you're to grow up into Jesus, right? No longer you that live, but Christ who lives in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Amen? Right? So you get, the first thing you have to decide is this book is about me. And once you decide that, then all the promises in there are to you, yes and amen. Right? But if you don't see yourself in this book, it's always, well, I wonder what God, what He's going to do. What does God think about it? Have I pleased Him? Have I not? See, you can't do that. Now, another aspect of this, before I get back in here real quick, <clears throat> is that one way to tell if you're operating in the new covenant, which is vital, obviously, is to know this. The new, one of the chief characteristics about the new covenant is this. The new covenant is the only covenant and the only thing that is guaranteed to purge your conscience of sin. Now, you notice it didn't just say to purge you of sin. It's one thing to be purged of sin. That's great. Amen? It's great to be purged of sin. But until your conscience is purged of sin, you will never act like Jesus. So you have to, to operate in the new... Here's how you know if you're operating in the new covenant. When you operate in the new covenant, you have no consciousness of sin. You understand? Because you're walking in Christ. He became sin for you. Amen? You, therefore, you are no longer conscious of your sin. So if, you're, if you are still always conscious of your sin, you are not walking in the new covenant. The new covenant purges your conscience of sin. That is probably the greatest benefit of the new covenant. Because with that comes everything else. Once you realize that the devil can't bring your past sins, which don't exist anymore because you're no longer the same person you were, you died, the old you died, right? And a new you is born and a new you is who? Christ in you, right? And because of that, the devil, anything he brings up, and no matter who he brings it up through, it has nothing to do with you, right? That's why you read about Paul's life, he hardly ever talked about his pre-Christ life. Hardly ever. The only times he really did it was when he had to stand in front of an official and give his testimony. That's really about it. Now, there are aspects of this that I want you to see because I want to, to, to get you into this fairly quick because I want to give you something to take home that you can work with. Amen? Now, <clears throat> notice this. If you read 1 Corinthians... 1 Corinthians, it tells us right at the beginning in chapter 2 and going into chapter 3 that the Corinthian church was carnal, right? Unspiritual, not super spiritual, right? They weren't doing everything right. Matter of fact, according to Paul, they were doing pretty much everything wrong. And yet in the book of Corinthians, it's probably the best uh, discussion of the spirit and how he operates in the church, right? One of the best. The amazing thing is, to the... If you look at the book of Romans, the book of Romans is the most theological, intellectual, if you want to call it that, I'd say spiritually intellectual book in the New Testament. Right? Paul goes into theology. He goes into detail. Now, you notice in Corinthians, talking to unspiritual people, carnal people. Now, what is carnal? People who, are, who walk by sight, who walk by the dictates of the flesh, rather than people who walk by the dictates of the Spirit of the Word of God. Amen? And he said, and, they, and Paul was trying to tell him, look, 
here's what you have to do. Here's how the Spirit operates. And do you realize he, He worked with them where they were. And He mentions in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 about the communion of the Lord's table. And in it, when we do communion, you'll see this, we'll talk about it a little bit more there, but you'll see in that, he said, here's how you get healed. He said, if you're sick, and this stuff is going on, and, and he said, some of you are sick, and some of you are dying early, because you don't know how to take communion correctly. Right? So, I'm giving you one of the four categories right there. The, you have, first, or, let me give the four categories. First one is the unsaved. Right? For the unsaved, it's real simple. You have Mark 16, 18 through 20. Believers will lay hands on the sick. The sick are the unbelievers. It's not sick believers. You got the believers and you got the sick. Two different categories. Why? Because the believers are healed and the sick are unbelievers in that sense. It was because that is talking about him going out or believers going out and ministering to the world as a sign gift to prove that Jesus is alive and the power of the Spirit is working through the church. Amen? Now, so for the unbeliever, how can the unbeliever get healed? What provision has God made for the unbeliever to get healed? Some people in churches, some entire denominations would tell you, God made no provision for the unbeliever to get healed. If you want to get healed, you've got to get saved first. That is a lie. Mark 16 is God's provision for the unbeliever to get healed. Simple as that. So for the unbeliever, you got Mark 16. Believers lay hands on the unbeliever, the sick, and they get well. Amen? That's one. So the next category, that's the unbeliever. What would be the next category? A new believer, right? A brand new believer. I'm talking, I'm not even old enough to be a carnal believer. Right? We're talking about a brand new believer. Now, if you read the book of James, as you've probably heard me talk about before, the book of James is a really good book as a primer of Christianity. Really, if you can only read one book in the New Testament, read the book of James. I'm you know, just throwing that out there. Why? Because it tells you everything about how to live the basic Christian life. It talks about faith. It talks about how to treat people. It's amazingly practical. It talks about how to watch your mouth. Right? It talks about if you say you're religious and you don't bridle your tongue, your religion's in vain. That's pretty direct. Then he said, Oh, and if you get sick, here's what... You notice he just said, if you, didn't get, if you get sick, shame on you. Because you shouldn't get sick. He didn't say that. Why? Because these are new believers. He said, if you get sick, call for an elder. He didn't even tell them to have faith. He just said, call for an elder. Let the elder... The elder will come. He'll pray over you. He'll, he'll lay hands on you. He'll anoint you with oil. And he'll pray the prayer of faith. And the prayer of faith, prayed by the elder, will save the sick. And they're right. So he doesn't scold them. He doesn't get on to them. You know, you've got to be a Christian in church to learn to do that. <clears throat> so he didn't do any of that. He just said, look, if you get sick, call for an elder. They'll come get you healed. Right? And he tells what to do with it. Now, then you... From, so you got the unbeliever, Mark 16. Then you got the new believer, James 5, 14-16. Then you've got the carnal believer. Okay, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 11 talking about how to take communion. Why? Because a carnal believer is one who is sense ruled. They, 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 they go by what they can feel, touch, see. They need something to connect. They need something that they can touch and feel. Something that they can taste. Something that has to do with their senses to say, this is the body of Christ broken for me and by His stripes I'm healed. 
You understand? They need a physical, we call it in the church today, thanks to Oral Roberts, the point of contact. Which, of course, I'm sure you know by now, he passed away uh, in December. Uh, and then Frida Lindsay also passed away uh, just, what, a couple of weeks ago, as a matter of fact. And, as a matter of fact, she passed... Amazing thing, just as a side note, okay? <laughs> trying to hurry here. Gordon Lindsay passed away on the platform at Christ the Nations on April 1st, 1973. Frida Lindsay was buried on April 1st of this year. She died just a few days before, and she was buried on the, on the same day, or the, you know, years apart, but the same day, April 1st, which is also my birthday. So I always remember, it's easy for me to remember those dates. But, you know, God bless them, man, they're, you know, that, that woman was amazing. I met her a few years ago. She gave me the rights to use the name, the voice of the healing. And, and, I mean, amazing woman, strong, amazing woman. So God bless her. She has finished her course. Amen? So anyway, all right. Now, so you've got the carnal believer. One has to have something physical. The elements, we call them, right? Well, an element is something physical. And then, maybe I should have asked you this first, because you get to decide what category you're in. But the only way you can decide it is to look at your life. Okay? So let me ask you this first off. Are there unbelievers here? You do not believe in Christ. You're not saved. You've never made Jesus your Lord. I'm trying to cover the whole spectrum. Anybody like that? Okay, okay. Now I'm going to say something that may shock you. For the first at least 300 years of the church, <clears throat> there is nothing in church recorded history of, the, of believers laying hands on believers for healing. All healing was done through the communion table for believers believers laid hands on the sick unbelievers as a sign right now I'm, now understand I'm not saying we're not going to do this just you know can, can we just be accurate right that's the only reason I'm saying it so technically unless you're an unbeliever I shouldn't have to lay hands on you to get you healed right nothing wrong with it nothing wrong with it I enjoy it it is a ministry in the church <clears throat> but laying hands on the sick <clears throat> excuse me laying hands <clears throat> on people in the church was predominantly for two reasons in early church history one for as a recognition of ordination and number two for the impartation of spiritual gifts alright but believers generally didn't have hands laid on them because and, and even in James it doesn't say that they will lay hands on them it says they will anoint him with oil. And if you want to call that laying hands, okay, that's kind of stretching it, but technically, okay. Right? <clears throat> so for the first three or four hundred years, they didn't lay hands, believers didn't lay hands on believers for healing. Believers laid hands on the sick for healing. For the first three or four hundred years, the way believers got healed was in the communion table. Right? So if you don't say you're an unbeliever, technically, you're not a candidate for laying hands to get healed. Biblically, all right? Again, I'm not saying we won't do it. We do it every time. I have no problem with it, okay? Now, but let's go to the next step. <clears throat> so then we have believers. Now we have for 
uh, new believers, if, if you're a new believer, how many of you would say, I'm a brand new believer, I mean, I just don't know much about the Bible, I don't even own a Bible maybe, or maybe somebody gave me one, is there anybody that's that new? I mean, you just got born again right away. Matter of fact, most today, most people even get born again knowing more about the Bible than used to the people did, right? So that's not you, okay? So technically, you wouldn't be a candidate to call for the elder, right? To be anointed with oil. Now, again, I understand, I'm not saying we don't do those things, right? We will do them. And if you request me to anoint you with oil, I will do it, all right? I have no problem with it. I'm just trying to grow you up. Amen? Be accurate. Look at the scriptures. Now, so, let me ask you this. Now, maybe you don't want to raise your hands on this one. Okay? But let's say there are people here that are carnal believers. Right? Sense ruled. You got to see something. You got to feel something. To know that God is here, to know the truth of the Word of God. Okay, if that's you, then the communion table is perfect for you to get healed. Amen? Now, when we do communion, we expect everybody that is a born-again believer to partake. Amen? So, but, unless you're a carnal believer, you don't have to get healed that way. Now, you can. And if you get healed that way, it doesn't mean you're a carnal believer. Alright? It doesn't mean that. But I'm just trying to differentiate. But let me show you. Go with me to... Well, before we go there, I'll just tell you what it is and I'll take it there. In Romans chapter 8, it tells us how the, how the mature spiritual believer is supposed to get healed. If that same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you, that same spirit will, will quicken... Right? Heal, make alive your mortal body. That is the only place where it talks about mortal bodies being healed. Alright? Now think about that. So in other words, the way for a mature believer to get healed is for you to simply realize who lives in you. Isn't that simple? Now, once you realize who dwells in you, then it's easy to understand how that spirit that lives in you wants freedom, wants to manifest himself, and will literally manifest himself through the flesh. Okay? One of the amazing things about Dr. Lake that I really appreciated, I've talked to well over a hundred people who sat under his teaching. Most of them were in their mid-90s. Right? Still alive. And the amazing thing about them is... Well, actually, I don't know of any of them. I can't think of any of them that were actually sick when I talked to them. And the other thing is, is that every one of them had a clear mind. I mean, none of them had Alzheimer's. None of them had any dementia. None of them had any senility. Right? Every, I mean, I would mention Dr. Lake. Oh, yeah, I was in his church from 1927 until May of 1931. And that was when his church was over on the corner of Lincoln and Sharp. I mean, detail, 92, 93 years old and given details that were over half a century old. Right? I mean, amazing. Now, Dr. Lake gave 
the explanation for it because he said that if you preach the word of God accurately and true that the word of God has the ability by the spirit that dwells in you by you he said it's a divine chemical reaction between the word and the spirit that the spirit in you gets a hold of the word of God that comes into you and because of that that get this when you put the word of God into your soul it's into your brain function. I'm, I'm talking. About, I know it's the difference between soul and brain, but the the brain is the the mechanics. Okay. When you put the word of God into the brain, and it starts to record it and to remember it, then the spirit comes from the spirit into the soul. Sorry, into the soul. Okay. When that happens, spirit and word together create a chemical reaction. Literally in the cerebral cortex of the brain and literally energizes and makes alive the cells of the brain. Do you understand that? Now, this is what Dr. Lake called the science of divine healing. This is the way it works. See, we think of these things, well, this is spiritual and this is natural. No, they are united. See, you're not, as I look at you, you're not fading in and out. You know, well, right now I'm thinking about food, so you can see me physically. But now I'm going to think about the Word of God. Oh, it's all spirit, so now I'm going to just disappear because I'm spirit. No, you don't. It's not that you are. You're spiritual and natural. You know what I mean by natural? I'm not talking about natural-minded, but I'm saying physically, right? You're here connected, so there is a connection between the two. So there should be a natural. Reaction between the Spirit and the Word that causes the Spirit to energize, Romans 8, and make alive your mortal body. Amen? Now, we see a good example of this, of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? Which could have been called the Mount of Transformation because it's the same word used in Romans 12 that's talked about where Jesus was on the Mount. Right? So you have to realize, because of this, you have... The spirit of the living God, not the dead God, the living God who is alive in you. You have the spirit of life in you, right? Now, because of that, now any area of sickness in your body or anything going on in you is just an area where that life, for whatever reason, right? Now, I'm not here to pick out the reasons. Jesus never picked out the reasons for people's sickness. He only healed them. Right? He was a deliverer and not a judge. Amen? So I'm not here to judge. I'm here to bring deliverance. And the way that, that you are delivered by that spirit of life, you understand, is by letting... You got that illness, let's say it's in your hand. Then for whatever reason, the flow of life of that spirit has been shut off. And whenever that is opened back up, Life flows in and that drives out sickness and disease. Alright? It's real simple. Now, so all we have to do, because again, I'm assuming you're not a carnal believer. I'm assuming you are a mature spiritual believer. And to be very honest with you, most of the people that I have met since I've been here on all my trips, you are some of the most mature believers I've ever met. Right? That's why every time I come here, I get to talk about good stuff. Right? I don't have to talk about baby stuff. We can get to good stuff. Amen? So, yeah, pat yourself on the back. That's good. Okay. So now, now, but all we have to do is get you to understand how to release 
the life of the Spirit of God into your flesh, out of your spirit. And if you do that, not only will you get well, then you can learn how to stay well. Right? Because is there ever a time when that life is not living? No. Right? Let me ask you this. I'll just throw this out here. Is there ever a time when Jesus is not the Christ? No. Right? He's always the Christ. What does Christ mean? The anointed one. So, and what I usually tell people is, apparently, according to the church, the only time Jesus is not the Christ is when he moves into a Christian. Because they think the anointing comes and goes. But if the anointed one lives in you, the anointing always abides, just as the scripture says. Right? But if you think it comes and goes, then there is time. If Jesus lives in me and the anointing goes, there's times when he's just Jesus. He ain't the Christ anymore. You understand? But if he's always the Christ, then guess what? He's always anointed. I'm always anointed. Amen? Isn't that simple? See? All right. Now, that, that had nothing to do with what I'm talking about. That's just extra. I had to throw that out for you. Now, let's get back over here real quick. Now, the way... There, there are several ways to do this. But the main way to allow the spirit of life to flow out of your spirit and into your flesh. Which, matter of fact, the last time I was here, which was what? Uh, end of last September, in September last year. Uh, one of the messages that Prophet Kobus brought was on the importance of the physical body. Remember that? Good stuff, right? I mean, because most of the time, especially in Christian circles, we become very, uh, you know, stoic and ascetics to where we want to do away with the flesh and do away with everything. And, and when the Bible talks about the flesh, it hardly ever talks about this. It's always talking about the carnal, fleshly nature, not this physical. This body is important, right? Okay, let me ask you. I'll show you how important this body is. Anybody want to give up your body tonight? Nobody? Y'all want to stick around a while, right? Okay, to stick around, you've got to stay connected to this body. Amen? Body's pretty important, right? So, nothing wrong with it, right? It does what you train it to do, right? So train it right. Teach it to do what's right. Now, anyway, okay. So we have to allow the spirit to flow out into the flesh. One of the ways, or a good way, a good, a fast way to do it, right? If you just need a quick charge, is praying in other tongues. That's a real fast way just because you... And, and honestly, it energizes spirit, soul, and body, right? But it, it charges you up. And it literally... Because even when you're praying in tongues, it's amazing. They did uh, research on this not too long ago. And they did uh, some stuff on the brain while people were praying in tongues. And they did some while people prayed in their normal language. And then some when they prayed in tongues. It was on ABC News, as a matter of fact. And they said that when, they prayed, when people prayed in their normal language, there was activity in the frontal lobe of the brain, which would be normal. And then it said when people prayed in tongues, there was no activity in the frontal lobe, but there was activity in the cortex. All right. Now, which is technically impossible because it, you shouldn't be able to generate any type of verbal sounds without, especially if it's supposed to mean something, without it generating some type of recognition through the, the, uh, front, the, through the front of the brain, frontal lobe. Right? So it proves that even though their tongue is making the sound, the or origin of the sound is coming from a source not mental. 
right? This is proven, right? So when people talk about, wow, you're one of them tongue talkers, you, yes, I am. And that means I'm smarter than you. Right? Because I don't have just my brain to work with. I have the mind of Christ too. Amen? That's a lot better, right? Two heads are better than one. Amen? So, now, so you start praying in tongues and it energizes everything. Right? That's one way to do it. Now, another is, and matter of fact, this is old, old school stuff really, uh, was Brother Lawrence. Remember Brother Lawrence way back? Practicing the presence of God. Now that is, that's a good thing to do. You just practice the presence of God. Just at various times in your day, just stop and practice the presence, acknowledging the presence of God with you. And then do that more and more often. Do it in different places. Do it, do it where you've never done it before because then that breaks that off to where that's in, uh, something that you think is separate. In other words, if you only pray in tongues or you only practice the presence of God in church... Then when you go outside of church, guess what? You're not going to feel His presence generally unless it is something that He does sovereignly to try to get you to do something to help somebody else. Right? But if you practice His presence in church and then you go to the store and you practice it there too, then all of a sudden the people around you will start to experience it. Recently, last year from October to January, we had our first year of our Bible school. And part of our class courses was dealing with the things of the Spirit. And so part of the homework I gave them, the students, was to, and it was over a course of about a week, was I told them, go to a store and go in and just stand next to somebody. You know, while they're looking in the frozen food section, you just walk up and look like you're looking too. And just kind of see how close you can get to them before they move. Now, usually, whenever you get within a certain space... We call it invading a person's space. Well, what is that? It's usually how far out a person's spirit emanates from them. And whenever your spirit bumps theirs, usually they will move. Now, usually the weakest person spiritually moves. That's the way it works, right? Now, then I told them, after you've done that, go back outside, walk around a little bit, pray in tongues. Pray in tongues quietly and low, almost under your breath. Then go back in, go to another place in the store, stand next to another person and see how close you can get and what their reactions are. Then after you've done that, go back outside, maybe even another day, pray in tongues loud and strong, as we would say, kind of like warfare. Boom, go ahead. Then go back in and stand next to a person and record the results. And it was amazing. Over the course of the week, the students' eyes were open to the reality of the presence of the Spirit and the effect it has on people. There were, and, and then I told them, go in and, and stand, you know, do this next to an adult. Then do it next to a child. And I said, and you'll watch the difference. And they would go in and one person, got, they got near an adult, and the adult looked at them and said, who are you? What do you want? I mean, out of nowhere, Right? And literally turned and walked off, took off, got away. Well, remember when Jesus approached Peter. Lord, I'm a sinful man. Get away from me. Right? Why? The emanation of the Spirit of God. See, that's what happened when they did that. Then I said, now go get next to a child. It's amazing. You pray in tongues and you get next to a child. Guess what they do? They come to you. They're, they're drawn towards you. Why? Innocence. They're not conscious of their sin. 
The adults are conscious. Even if they don't know it, they're conscious of their sin, which proves they're not walking in the new covenant. Right? But the children are drawn. Children, and it's amazing. You, I walk to a grocery store or somewhere. I notice children. I love children. And it's amazing. I walk past and kids will look at me, especially if they're in the buggy and they can't get to you. They'll look at it and they'll just follow you. I mean, literally, they are drawn to the Spirit of God. Why? Because they understand the Spirit. They don't know they understand it. But they're drawn to it and their innocence and purity, they recognize that. Amen? So these are aspects. So that's one way to do it. Now, the other way is, as I said, to practice the presence. And that's whenever you just take the Word of God for exactly what it says and you begin to just practice the presence of God. I remember I first started experiencing some of this early, early days before I was ever really ministering to any degree. And I would sit and I'd get these A. Allen videos and the Jack Coe videos and William Branham. And I would sit there and I already told you about this. I'd watch them over and over. I mean, I'd just play that thing. I mean, literally fall asleep on the couch watching this and then fall asleep. And it was VHS back in those days. And when it got to the end of the tape, it would stop and rewind and make a loud noise when it stops. Remember that? Some, some of you are too young to remember that. That's sad. Anyway, so... But I would, and I would wake up, you know, I'd fall asleep watching it, and when it rewound, I'd wake up and I'd play it again. And I'd sit there and tell God, I want that. I want that. And, and there was no man that I could get near that had it. You know, all the men that had it, I couldn't get near them because they all had bodyguards. You know, or something. You know, lived in fence-gated areas that you couldn't get to and could never see and could never approach. And so I couldn't get around anybody. And then I heard of one guy, well, actually, when I was down in Houston, Texas, had a word explosion at John Osteen's church at the Sam Houston Auditorium there we had a big meeting and all the big guys were there all the big names and I went in I snuck in they had a minister's meeting I wasn't an ordained minister but I snuck in right and I was sitting there and they started taking questions and I said I had a question so I raised my hand and I said this question is for Dr. Sumrall Lester Sumrall was there Kenneth Hagin was there Kenneth Copeland was there T.L. Osmond was there John Osteen was there uh, Hilton Sutton I mean all these people you know all the people that were big names when I was coming up and I raised my hand. I said, this is for Dr. Sumrall. And he answered the question when he finished. He said, how fast can you get to South Bend, Indiana? And I said, well, I, I can get there as quick as I can. He said, when you get there, you come see me. And so within a week, yeah, within a week, I was standing at his office in South Bend, Indiana. Had to ride a bus to get there. Had no money, no car. Had a wife. Had uh, three kids at that time. Yep, three kids. And had no money. I quit a job left my wife and my kids to live with my sister-in-law for the time being while I went up there I was going to go up and get a job and then get a place and then come back and get them but I was getting there and I got there and I remember walking in his office and from that day on I was able to get around a man who walked in the spirit and walked in it practically first man I'd ever seen with that you know now I thank God that most of those guys I couldn't get near because if I'd have gotten near him, they'd have ruined me. But because I was able to get around Dr. Summerall, he showed me I can be practical, I can be normal to some degree, and, and spiritual at the same time. And that's a lot of... Matter of fact, I will tell you, t today, as a matter of fact, we went to, uh, uh, to pray for some people. We went yesterday and, and today and prayed for people. And <clears throat> it's funny because, as most of you know, if you've seen me minister... And same thing with Brother Cobus, I've noticed the same thing. Very non-theatrical. You know, there's times when you can do things. And when you see me, if you see me do something that you think looks a little theatrical, I can tell you, I'm just playing. I'm having fun and playing. Isn't that right? Isn't that what we do? You just play with it. 
Right? I don't mean that disrespectfully. But you realize it's not about you being all super spiritual and, you know, and, and especially it's not about you straining until the blood vessels are coming out of your neck. And you're, you know, and the matter of fact, the more you strain, the more you cut off the power generally. Right? And so I've learned to just flow. And, and it's natural. We shouldn't have to get into an altered state to be able to minister the Spirit of God if the Spirit of God is always with us. Amen? And so, today, even today we went and prayed for some people, for some, for some kids. And it's funny because sometimes you get around people and you can tell when they're looking at you, it's kind of like, this doesn't seem to be no big deal. You know, I thought you were going to come in, kind of like Naaman, the prophet. You know, well, I, if it's real, I mean, surely he would have said, you know, do this or do that. And so I'm not going to go dip in the River Jordan seven times. You know, that's too simple. And so when we finished praying, I, I, I told the person, I said, you know, I, I know this wasn't very theatrical because it doesn't leave a big impression when we minister except the people getting healed. Right? But I said, I know this isn't a, you know, I didn't do a big theatrical thing, but we don't have to. Right? This is easy. This is it's just who we are. We minister because of who we are. We minister the Spirit of God through us because we're connected with God. Amen? It's not about working up something. If you have to work it up, it's here. Right? But if you can just pour it out, it's here. And so the key is to just relax and be normal and be able to take a person by the hand and say, yeah, you'll be healed in Jesus' name. It'll be this way and no other. Amen? And then standing on that no matter what. Right? Even if they die. <clears throat> See, somebody's got to die before there can be a dead raising. Right? Dying isn't always fun. Right? And it doesn't look good. But if they don't die, you can't have a dead raising. All you can have is a healing. Which is fine. Okay? Because most people don't volunteer for the dead raising. But if they die and you quit and you go, well, I guess it wasn't God's will, then you will never see the dead raised. So you have to decide. Listen, listen carefully. Faith decides the outcome from the beginning. And then doesn't waver off of that outcome. If you say this person will live and be healed and then they die and you say, mm, yep, guess I got it wrong. Then guess what? Your faith was weak because it was not able to withstand contrary evidence. Do you understand? Faith that is strong is able and I'd, I'd like to have more time to be able to go into this in detail but it's real simple. If you want to know the type of faith that it takes to get the job done all you need to do is go back and really read Romans 4 because it said that Abraham considered not his own body even though it was dead. He considered him who had promised. Right? So what are you looking at? You're looking at this that says by his stripes you're healed? Or are you looking at that report? Or are you looking at your body? What are you looking at? Right? You have to look at this. Faith chooses this and then refuses to back off. No matter what. Amen? You set the end result and you don't stop until that's what you get. Right? Now the end result is going to be here. If it's sickness, it's going to be healing. Right? Even if they die. Lazarus, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. Did he die? Yes. 
Was Jesus a liar or was he wrong? No, it didn't end in death. For most people, it would have ended in death because when he died, they'd have gave up. But he didn't say Lazarus wouldn't die. He said this sickness will not end in death. No, it ended in a dead raising. Right? Which also means it ended in a healing because Jesus had to heal Lazarus when he raised him from the dead or else when he came back alive, he just dropped dead again. Right? So there had to be a dead raising and a healing. Amen? Y'all getting this? Right? Is this helping you any? Right? I'm telling you, if, if you will just learn these little lessons, it'll change everything. Right? And you, you never have to be defeated again. Literally. I'm not saying you won't ever be tested. I'm not saying you won't ever be in a battle. But you don't have to lose them. You can win. Amen? Why? Thanks be unto God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ Jesus. Always. Right? So if I'm going somewhere, I'm going there to win, not to lose. Right? Now, real quick here, because I want to get into some of these other things here. I want to take you, notice he says here, in verse, we're still in James. James verse 24. For the man beholds himself, goes his way straightway, forgets what manner of man he is. But, whoso looks into the perfect law of liberty. Now he's already talking about looking into the Word of God. And the Word of God is the perfect law of liberty. Isn't that amazing? A law of liberty. Now that, that, that sounds like, as we say, an oxymoron or, a, or you know, a, a total contradiction. How can you have a law of liberty? Well, it's because just like you have a law of faith. In other words, there is a principle by which faith works. The law of faith is a principle that works a certain way all the time. Right? And that makes it a law. Gravity works a certain way all the time. Even though an airplane overrides the law of gravity, gravity is still working. Right? Just a higher law, the law of lift, comes into effect and supersedes the law of gravity. Amen? Well, now you have a law of fact. Okay? Doctor says, you got this disease. You got that disease. Prognosis, diagnosis, you're going to die. Right? Alright. That's, that's, a, that's a fact. Right? We're not denying that. It's a fact. Is it real? Of course it's real. Right? We're not Christian science. We're not saying it doesn't exist. But, thanks be unto God that there is a higher law. And the higher law is the law of faith. And the law of faith will override the law of fact. And if you maintain faith, then that law, just like the law of lift overrides the law of gravity, the law of faith will override the law of fact, and the fact will line up with your faith. Amen? Real simple, right? Now... This is, again, what Dr. Lake would refer to as the science of divine healing, right? This stuff is amazingly simple, and it works. For some reason, we think, well, not y'all, because I know y'all, but, or most of you, but for, most, for some reason, most Christians think that for it to be spiritual, it has to be weird, wispy, and unexplainable. If you can explain it, it can't be God. That's not true, right? You can look at gravity... God put gravity into effect. He put the planets where they are and how they do all that. Okay. See, we call it science. Well, that's not spiritual, that's science. No, it was spiritual before it was ever science. 
Right? God said it before man ever figured out how it worked. Right? The sci- all science is is figuring out how God does things. Once a man figures it, figures it out, it doesn't mean it's not God. It's still God. A man can figure out some of the things of how God works. But the bad part is, many times, even though he can figure it out, he still can't see God in it. Why? Because the, natu- the spiritual things are foolishness to the mat- natural man, and the natural man can't receive them. He can figure out the natural aspects, but he can't figure out the source. Right? But you're not those people. You are spiritual. You understand spiritual things. And because of that, you can look at the natural things and see God in it. Right? That's being spiritual is whenever you can look at how God does things and go, wow, that's how God does it. That's neat. And yet it doesn't shake your faith because science comes up with something that says, well, this is how it works. You ask, because of science, some of the things you used to have to use faith for, you don't have to use faith for anymore because now you know how it works and it's not mystical. You can just walk in it. I mean, that should advance our faith, not detract from our faith. Right? Now, you look at, what is it, 1 Corinthians? I want to, oh, we're doing pretty good here. Yeah, we're doing good. Uh, I want to take you to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, real quick. Now, the scripture reference that I gave you a while ago for Abraham was Romans 4, 17 through 21. Talking about where he considered not his own body. So just if you're taking notes, it's Romans 4, 17 through 21. Now we're going to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Okay. Yeah. And we're going to look about... Hardest thing about taking a verse and reading it is knowing where to start. Right? Because it's all good. You know, you can just go back and then you just start teaching expositionally and you don't get to the point you're trying to get to. But it's all good, right? So he says here, we're going to look at verse... uh, Let's go to verse 17. We'll just start there real quick. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Now, notice, it didn't act, that didn't automatically happen. Do you understand? So, this light affliction that is but for a moment works a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory, but it doesn't just automatically happen. It only happens, verse 18, while we look. you understand? That's like saying, well, you know, all things work together for the good. That's not that... that, that uh. Well, you know, uh, he lost his job. Really, is he saved? No. But you know, all things work together for the good, not for him. Honestly, alright? It says, all things work together for the good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. Right? So as a Christian, as a believer, then if something bad happens, you can say, you know what? This is going to work for, for my good. This is going to work out for you. Why? Because I love the Lord. Not because it just happens, but because I love the Lord and I am the call according to His purpose. Amen? So you can claim that scripture. But technically an unsaved person can't. Now, if you put yourself into their situation, you can change their situation. See, now this is... Most Christians don't even ever really get to this. I don't know why. But they only see the things of the Spirit for themselves and their close loved ones. But do you realize that if all things work together for the good for you because you're, you love God and are called according to His purpose, 
then if your situ if you meld your situation with a person over here, an unbeliever, then you can make their situation work for good because it's working for your good because now it'll be a witnessing point to show the motorcycle and the bikers. You get it? Because then it all works together. Why? Because you have involved your life in theirs. God didn't... He said, look, I'm not taking you out of the world. I've called you to be a light in the world. Right? Well, you can't be a light by, by looking at people going, <laughs> I'm all healed and you're all sick. Too bad you're not me. Right? That's not letting your light shine. Your light shine is saying, you know what? I got so much life. I got life and I got it in abundance. I got so much. I got enough to get me well and keep me well. And I can get you well too because I got extra life for you. Then, you understand? What are you doing? You're involving your life into them and because of your blessing of God they get blessed does that make sense do you get that I'm telling you if you walk in this life gets good amen and it doesn't matter what goes on in the economy you know it doesn't matter if you get you know Zuma shaking hands with Obama right it, you know it doesn't matter it doesn't matter if you get you know riots going on in Bangkok why because we're not relegated to this realm we walk in the spirit do you understand we are translated from the darkness and translated into the kingdom of his dear son amen and because of that we walk in this kingdom and because that our, since we're in the kingdom we're not relegated to just earthly principles right sowing and reaping it works right now let me ask you this can an unsaved person Reap and sow. Sow and reap. Of course. Why? Because it's a natural law. It's an earthly law. Where, where, do you, where is the first place you see sowing and reaping? Genesis in the garden. Isn't that right? You, you go back to Genesis and it says every seed will bear after its own. Right? So it's a net. Any person can sow and reap. You don't have to be spiritual. You don't have to be born again. You don't have to be in the kingdom of God to, to sow and reap. Anybody can do it. It's a natural law. Come on, don't just live in natural law. Live in kingdom law. You know what that means? That means that whatever God has is mine. Now listen, I don't have to sow to get it. Now when I sow, I'm sowing to be a blessing. Not to get. Why? Because I've already got it all. Right? If He gave us Christ, will He not with Christ give us all things? It doesn't say after I sow... Right? Guess what? Guess what got sowed so that I can reap all things? Christ Jesus. He was a grain of wheat that gets sown into the ground, and if he goes into the ground, he comes back and brings forth much what fruit. Isn't that right? You get that? Operate in the kingdom. Then, it, then you get all of a sudden now you're not given out of a need. Now you're given to bless. And and believe me, when you do that, you'll give more than you gave before. Why? Because you're not relegated to what you got in your wallet. Now, the kingdom of heaven is what you... See, real prosperity is not what you can gather. You understand? Real prosperity is not what you can gather up and hoard up in a pile. Real prosperity is having access to whatever you need. You understand? Now, if you look at my pile, I ain't got a big pile. But guess what? I have access to everything I need. That makes me truly prosperous because nobody can break in and steal my pile. Right? And my pile can't diminish in what it's worth. 
right? A dollar, you know, a rand isn't worth what a rand used to be at one time. I know it's actually gained a little strength now, right? But I'm saying it, my, my pile isn't determined on what the world economy system says my dollar's worth, right? I can take a U.S. dollar that isn't worth a whole lot and God can stretch that thing and give me deals that will be better than if I had a thousand dollars. Amen? Because it's not in just the exchange of the money, it's in the favor of God, which we have. Amen? Alright, now, real quick here. Got about seven minutes, I'm going to start praying for people. Okay? I'll do it before then. Now, let me show you where we at. Yeah, we didn't even get to the part I want to get to. Verse 18. So, how, these light afflictions, how do they work a more eternal weight of glory? Or, or yeah, a far, a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory? While we look... Now look, it says you've got to look at something. For your problems, for this affliction to give you a greater weight of glory, eternal glory, you've got to do something. You've got to be looking at something. Right? That's what it says right there. While we look not... Alright, you got things you look at, things you look not at. What do you look at? Right, into a mirror, the perfect law of liberty, the Word of God, that's what you look at. What do you look not at? Let's read. While we look not at the things, things, what's a thing? A thing is something, okay, this is a thing, this is a thing. So, a thing is something you can touch, right? It's something you can see, it's something you can feel, right? It's a thing, it's a substance, right? Okay. While we look not at the things, right? If I take something here and I look at this, I go, oh, look at that. Here's a, oh yeah, it's a doctor's report. Oh, is that a thing? Okay. All right. Just want to make sure y'all know what a thing is, right? Okay. Now, while we look not at the things which are seen. So in other words, the only time our light affliction works a greater weight of glory is when we're not looking at things we can see. So what does that mean? When they go... Look, here's what you... Okay, yeah, I, I know what that says already. You already told me I don't need to look at it. Why? Well, no, you need to know it. No, no, I don't need... And it's amazing. They will want this thing to be in front of your face. All the time. And they want you... They want you to acknowledge this thing. And to agree with them. That this thing is right and true. That's what they're trying to do. And you have to be able to not look at the things which are seen... But look at the things which are not seen. Well, what's not seen? Well, okay, so if you're sick, you can see the sick. So what can you not see? The healing. Right? So you've got to look at the thing you can't see, which is the healing, rather than looking at the thing you can see, which is the sickness. And if you look at the thing you can't see, then what you're going through will work a greater weight of glory. Why? Because the thing that the enemy meant for bad, all things work together for the good, will turn around and grow your faith instead of diminishing your faith. Amen? Alright, we could go further, but watch. He says, while we look not to things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. Why? Why does God want us not to look at the things that are seen? For the things which are seen are temporal. Why waste your time looking at them? They're going to change. Why look at them? It's going to change. Now, honestly, think back. How, everybody in here would have to raise your hand. How many of you could look at yourself, you look at yourself in the mirror, and you say, well, this thing 
has changed in the last 10 years? Right? How many of you could take your, your bank book and look at it and go, wow, that's changed in the last 10 years? Right? Why? Then why do you put so much emphasis on what they're saying today? They're going to change again. Right? Now the difference is, by your faith, you can determine in what direction they change. Amen? If, but if you look at what it is and you go, this is the way it is, and well, it's bad and it's getting worse. Well, what are you looking at? Now you've even gone further than that because now you're putting faith in what you can see and you're putting that faith into the future and saying, it's gone from here to bad and from bad to worse. It's going to get worse. What are you using? Faith in the negative. You're using reverse faith, which is nothing but fear, basically, right? To a degree. But you're using reverse faith. Instead, don't look at the things you can see to see the things you can't see. Look at the things you can't see to see to begin seeing what you will see. Amen? You get that? Alright, yeah. I'm telling you. Alright, first off, I am not telling you any theory. Do you understand? Everything I'm telling you, I have lived and done. I could be here a while telling you testimonies in our own family. I already told you a couple of them with my daughter. Uh, my daughter Crystal, the one who just had the baby, developed pneumonia right after our first daughter died of pneumonia. And I took... And listen, I'm not against doctors. They help keep people alive. Okay? Some of them do. Most of them. They try. Okay? Put it that way. I just, and I don't need one because I, I just got a better way. Alright? I'm not against them. You understand. You understand that. Doctors, come on. They, um, many doctors are Christian and, you know, use whatever talents they have for that. Amen? And I never want you to try to do something because I did it. Because, you know, I, I pray to God you never have to do some of the things I did. I pray that you can learn from the examples or experiences and you can actually won't need to go through the things I did. See, a fool learns from his own mistakes. A wise man learns from the mistakes of others. Right? So learn from other people's mistakes. Don't have to go through it yourself. Right? And my daughter developed pneumonia. I took our first daughter to the doctor. She died. Actually, we called the doctor and they said, wait and bring her in the morning. In the morning, she was dead. Right? So we couldn't wait. So from that day on, I made a decision that I would not turn my children over to doctors. I said, God gave them to me. They're my responsibility. I will trust God for them. Right? When she developed pneumonia, it was literally hell. I mean, it was torment. We were just a few yards away from each other in our, in our house. And I could hear the same type of gurgling in her lungs that I heard from my first child that killed my first child. And after you've buried one and then you hear the same thing in the second one or yeah, the second one at this point. It there is nothing like it. There is a fear that tries to grip you that you just want to grab the child and run to the doctor and run to the hospital and say, do something and save this child because you remember burying that first one. But I had made a decision we were going to trust God in everything and in every healing, every aspect of sickness and disease. And I went in there and I laid my hands on that child. And we prayed. And then I didn't know anything what I knew today. 
We were just starting to learn some stuff. Had some good faith teaching, but that was as much as we had. And I began just praying. And when I got done, no change. I went in, that was late at night, I had to go in, and what I understood faith to be was to act as though she was healed and to receive it, and that's where I was at and what I understood. And I went in and went to my bed, and I laid there, and when you turn out the lights, every sound gets louder. And when I turned out those lights, you could hear the, the rumbling in her chest much better than you could before. And I'm talking about two rooms away. And I had to lay there and hear that. And my greatest desire was to get up and run in and take her and do something. But I, I had to decide. I believe God. He said lay hands on the sick. They will recover. That's what we did. We did everything we know to do. Now we stand. And I literally had to put my head under a pillow. And I laid there awake for hours with my head under a pillow until finally somehow I drifted off. Then in the next morning when I woke up, when you first wake up and you realize what's going on and you remember, you stop and you listen. And the only thing worse than hearing it is not hearing it. Because the first thing that goes through your mind is, she's dead too. And so I got up. I didn't go to her room. Why? Because that would have been fear. I got up. I did what I do every morning. I went in, got something to drink, walked around, went through the house. When I, when I was convinced that by my going to her room was not out of fear, then I went into her room. And when I walked in her room, she was sitting on the side of her bed playing with no fever, no sickness, and perfectly healed. Amen. Now, but let me tell you, 12 hours before that was hell. But that was one of the times that we had to take a stand. Don't think faith is easy. If it was easy, everybody would be doing it. If it was easy, we wouldn't have Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 is people that stood in faith because it's not easy until, and then literally I say, till you grow into it and you make the decision. Now once you make the decision, it gets easier. But until then, it's hell. So just be ready. Amen? But know this, if you stand in due time, you will receive the promise. Amen? Yeah, let's, let's pray here and then we'll, we'll serve communion. But let's just pray. All those by television, uh, if you're watching by, inter by television, by internet, if you're in any form under the sound of my voice, I'm going to pray for you right now. So right now, in the name of Jesus, Father, we just thank you and we praise you. Lord, we give you praise and honor, glory for everything that goes on here. Father, we thank you that you are such a good God and such a good Father that you would allow us to literally embody your spirit and be able to speak words of spirit and life and that we can speak these words out and cause a change in the bodies, in the souls, in the spirits, in the minds of people around the world. Father, we thank you for it right now. We thank you for that blood that was shed on that cross that provides our salvation. We thank you, Lord, for the stripes that were bore by our Lord and Savior Jesus. And that by those stripes, we were healed. And right now, because of that truth, that we were healed. Father, I thank you. You don't have to make a decision about who gets healed and who does. You've already decided. It's done. 
And I thank you for it now. So right now we participate in your victory over your enemy of sickness and death. And we say in the name of Jesus right now, wherever you are listening to the sound of my voice, those by television, internet, any other form, I speak to you now. And remember, a general promise on a specific situation is the greatest faith. So right now, I speak to your body, I speak to your mind, I speak to your soul. In the name of Jesus, sickness, disease, I command you, go in Jesus' name. You have no right in these people. In the name of Jesus, right now, sickness and disease, you will bow your knee to the name of Jesus. I don't care what doctors call you. I don't care what hold you've had on the people. I command you now, loose them and let them go. In Jesus' name, we command life, health, strength into every person under the sound of my voice right now. In Jesus' name, right now, we send forth His Word and heal every person listening now. In Jesus' name. We command this to be so. Father, we praise you. And right now, in the name of Jesus, if you are anyone out there that is listening, if you've had anything that you could not do, do it now. Right now. And be free. Right now. Begin to move. Hope against hope. Doctor said you'll never walk and never move again. You'll never do anything. Prove that our truth of the Word of God is a higher law than a doctor's report. And do what you could not do before.